Welcome to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions. My name is Courtney. And I am Carl. This is episode 164, and we're reviewing the one, the only, Attack on Titan, The Final Chapters, Part 2. There will be spoilers for anything and everything that has happened in the Attack on Titan anime, and some manga spoilers at the end. How do we even begin? Like, how, how, where do we start? We, we've arrived at the end of the anime of all time. <laughs> I'll start with this. We are free. Yeah. From having to avoid Attack on Titan spoilers anymore. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, this is pretty significant for us because I think we, we've watched this show, I think pretty much since it started. So 10 years and I don't think I've been spoiled on many major plot details, um, although there were some out of context ones that I happened to find on the internet, but I, I did my due diligence in making sure I took all the safety measures and precautions to make sure I was not fully spoiled on this ending. Yeah, props to any of the fellow anime-only people who made it made it through the 10 years, um, or at least through the final season without any major spoilers, especially after the manga concluded. I actually got spoiled <laughs> about two things, but I wasn't too mad about it. And I'll, uh, if, if I remember, because this is probably going to be a really in-depth discussion, um, I'll, I'll share what got me spoiled. But let's jump right into it. So um, we normally do an Attack on Titan special event. If you've been um, a listener of Strictly Anime long enough, you know that we had a special event dedicated to this this anime where we would put out episodes as the episodes of AOT were airing in addition to our regularly scheduled episodes. This time around, because this finale is such a big event and is so important to us, we're dedicating an entire main episode to the end of Attack on Titan. Yeah, too bad we're not doing this aboard a cruise ship. You know what I'm talking about? There was a internet launch party that took place on a virtual cruise ship to celebrate the finale. Really? Yeah, that was the thing you emailed me. Uh, oh, the watch the, party? Yeah, the watch party. Oh, <laughs> is that what I was seeing like the clips of? <laughs> yeah, you could make your own avatar and celebrate the finale on that cruise ship. But no, we're just doing this from the comfort of our podcast room. <laughs> but I'm sure it'll it'll be just as fun. We also want to give a huge shout out to our good friend Brian from TV and Movie Trivia Podcast for coming on to our podcast multiple times um, over the recent years to talk about Attack on Titan throughout the final season. Brian was uh, just so much fun to have on. He's a, a diehard fan of Attack on Titan. And even outside of having him on the podcast, we frequently talk with him about Attack on Titan, um, about the episodes as they were airing, and of course, about this finale. Yeah, still waiting for your trivia series on Attack on Titan, Brian. <laughs> but no, we do appreciate you coming on and, and discussing this historic anime with us. It's been a long road, and, and we're finally here. But one last thing we just want to share before we actually jump into the finale, and that's ways to support us. So if you enjoy this Attack on Titan discussion, because I know that Carl has been pouring his heart and soul into preparing for this episode. Yes, 20 pages of notes. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and if you enjoy our podcast in general, um, there are many ways to support us if that's something you'd like to do. Um, I think one of the easiest ways to support us is to follow us on whatever 
uh, platform you listen to your podcast on. For example, if you listen to us on Spotify, feel free to um, follow us there and get subscribed um, so that way you can be notified as new episodes are published. And if your platform happens to have a rating system, we really appreciate it whenever our listeners leave us ratings because that helps us out a lot um, and kind of gives us a little bit of feedback on the podcast. You can also join our Discord to connect with other listeners, to connect with us, and talk all about Attack on Titan. As of right now, we have a channel dedicated to Attack on Titan to maintain spoilers, but allow everyone a, a place to just like theorize and talk all about the epic finale that we had. I mean, will there really be any more theorizing? <laughs> you never know. <laughs> no, yeah, that channel has been on fire recently and for good reason. Um, so it's definitely... Definitely fun peeking in there and seeing what people are up to. Another way to support us is to follow us on social media. We're over at Instagram at the Strictly Series and on Twitter or X or whatever it is now at Strictly Series. You can also check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the Strictly Series. And the, I think the best way most podcasts grow is through word of mouth. So if you know of a friend who loves podcasts and who loves anime or is just starting to get into anime, please recommend Strictly Anime to them and encourage them to check us out. So we've got a heavy, in-depth, lengthy, and really exciting discussion to go through for this finale. Let's just jump right into it. Let's go... I'm thinking, what, chapter by chapter, just kind of breaking things up because we have an hour and a half of AOT content to cover. That seems like probably the best way to do it. Yeah, so I think this is going to pretty much cover the format we had for the final chapters part one, where we'll go chapter by chapter. In this case, there's a total of three in our summary and general discussion. And since I mentioned it, we encourage all of you to go ahead and check out our review of Attack on Titan, the final chapters, part one, which we did back in March. Um, that episode does not have a number attached to it, but it is between episodes 129 and 130 for your reference. But all right, AOT fans. Time to spread our wings of freedom one last time as we rumble our way into our synopsis and discussion for Attack on Titan, the final season, the final chapters, part two. Starting with chapter three, the battle of heaven and earth. It's the end of Zawardo as we know it. And it's all thanks to a party of porco pigs who persuaded a petite porcelain prepubescent into propping open their putrid playpen. Now in the present doomsday, Emir invites to her group chat the ghosts of Titan's past in order to keep the LD Avengers from ruining Operation DualShock Rumbling. And just when they thought the Beast Ball game was over. Armin Dancho calls an audible in using his colossal Titan to take down Zika's Christ and Aaron Jaeger monster, but those hopes are immediately dashed when he is swallowed gobblemead by the weirdest looking Pokemon Titan I've ever seen. The game plan changes into an Armin rescue mission that very much goes south, beginning with Peak the Putrid's futile attempt to give Eren a literal brain blast that results in her becoming a skewer a la carte titan thanks to the ghost of Warhammer past. Reiner and Levi squad are pretty much sitting duck devils, so Colonel Sanders rallies his troops at Fort Salta in Wound to provide artillery support from a billion miles away. If only they had some sort of flying contraption that could bring them closer to the battlefield, except the flight is indefinitely delayed 
and the coupon to Onion is temporarily out of service. With the LD Avengers season, or should I say final, final, final season on the line, Mikasa decides fuck it one Ackerman army time until Annie, Gung-Ho Gabby, and Falco Punch come swooping in with the clutch. And yes, Flying Titan finally confirmed. She climbs on board to scout for the weird-looking Pokemon Titan, while Peek the Putrid resets her cartridge, and the remaining team regroup to strategize Eren's Brain Blast. But even at halftime, it still looks like the Jaeger monsters are pulling away, and, at the risk of another pun, leaving us with some literal cliffhangers. Meanwhile, Armin Dancho is in a glass case of emotion, trying to find his damn reset button so he can come back off the bench, but soon realizes that he is actually in the Prince of Persia Sands of Time, and has quite the opportunity to table the turns on Operation Dualshock Rumbling by having a sandcastle playdate with Zekus Christ. So we get a little recap. And we're thrown right into uh, where we left off in part one. And we kind of start off with Armin making the decision that he's going to fucking blow this shit away. Blow away all the bones um, of Aaron Yeager. And comments to himself after everyone, you know, runs away so they don't get caught up in the blast. That those who can't abandon anything can't change anything. And this is a callback. I, I, I at first thought this was Erwin saying this line to Armin in some form, but this is actually a callback to when Armin said it mm-hmm. to John when they were in the forest, right? Yes. I have the episode reference. It's a season one, episode 20, which is Erwin Smith, the 57th Exterior Scouting Mission, part four. Um, but I think this time around, that line holds even more meaning to Armin because of the stakes that are raised and the links to which he has to take down Aaron. Before this, though, we, we get a, a brief travel back in time to Emir and the pig pen, because she was originally accused of opening it, but this confirms that she did. Yeah, that's right. I forgot that we didn't get that confirmation beforehand. Yeah, I thought everyone uh, in her village was just being a dick, <laughs> but no, she she did it of her own accord, of her own freedom. Interesting. Well, we jump to uh, Armin being, you know, very, uh, very Erwin-esque to some tentacle porn. (laughs) (laughs) I was very uncomfortable about whatever that Okapi was uh, launching over at Armin, but it it basically subdues him and shoves its tentacles in his mouth. It's it's his tongue, right? I think so, but it just looks like a big-ass tentacle. Um, Yeah. And it shoves it in Armin's mouth and gags him out. He has, like, saliva on it. I'm like, oof. This is a little awkward. Yeah, saliva. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like it's kind of like um, the thirst trap Armin from earlier in the final season when he gets pinned down to the table and everyone's like, "Ooh, Zaddy Armin," <laughs> but here it's like a different kind of ooh oh, yeah. situation. I, see, I, was, I was thinking of when Falco's jaw Titan was on top of uh, Peak's cart type. Oh, yeah, that was a good one, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all, all of these out-of-context scenes from the final season. We get confirmation that Onyan Capone has survived. Let's fucking go. Thank God he's one of the one of the real ones, one of the best characters um, on the parody side of things. The flying boat didn't survive, though. Yeah, apparently that cracked under the weight of a fucking... Oh, flying boat? 
Yeah. Oh, I just heard boat. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I was going to say if cracked under the weight of big ass Falco, but you're right. The the plane, the flying yeah. boat did not actually survive. I wouldn't expect it to. Yeah, because it ran out of fuel and it doesn't have landing gear. It just has those skids for it to make us uh, water landing. Um, but this was one of the things that I brought up in our part one review is if this plane was going to be Fort Salta's last resort in escaping the rumbling. It's not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then as the group is trying to, you know, make their way to the, the front and the back end of Aaron's Titan form, we then see a ton of nine Titans spawned from like previous wielders. And it looks like they're spawned of the Warhammer's abilities because they're all white and they have, at least when they're first spawned, before they kind of break free and they go to attack everybody, you can see almost like a connecting piece from that Titan to Eren's bones. Yeah, similar to how we first saw Zeke's Beast Titan at the end of the part one climax. And it's so cool to see what past Titans look like or Titans of previous wielders. There's some that like, like there's some Warhammers that look like they're straight out of Tron. I kind of found, I found that like really interesting. Like yeah. they look cooler than the Warhammer that we saw when we first got introduced to it. I mean, one of them looked like they were literally out of like an ancient war, like like an yeah. ancient <laughs> Greek war. But yeah, the Tron one was was very prevalent. And then you also see Galliard and Marcel or Porco and Marcel Galliard's jaw titan. Yeah, you see everybody. You get to see. Um, we get Ymir's uh, jaw titan. We get Bertolt coming back. Um, his colossal. Uh, we even get to see titans that we never got confirmation of. Uh, that's Kasavers. Yeah, that's later in. I think in the next chapter though. Yeah, but... and then also we see Grisha's titan in action, which is pretty cool. I do want to note at this point because this is really when the fighting starts to take shape we've talked in the past about how mappa's odm scenes um, were good but just nowhere near the level that wit studio has i feel like this time around with the finale mappa really went all out they still don't have that elegance and that grace that wit studio created especially with any um odm gear scenes for levi and for mikasa but these went hard they went so hard they look so clean they look so good uh, i really enjoyed watching them yeah mappa knew the very heavy task that was given to them in wrapping up this series and i think they pulled out all the stops and they delivered um kind of related to this uh the mangaka for A aot hajime isayama released a message on social media um, to fans just thanking them for joining them on the anime journey and to look forward to this finale. There was a part of the message where he says, this is going to be rough for Mappa. Mappa is probably thinking, please stop. I'm sorry, Mappa. I'm really sorry. <laughs> um, and I think it's because of the complexity of animating this battle of heaven and earth. But I'll, I'll admit, it, I think they did a really damn good job. I mean, everything. it is a significant part of the finale. You, you have mm -hmm. an hour and a half of content. I don't know the exact amount of time that was dedicated to this battle, but it is significant. It is a long, ongoing battle. It never overstays, it overstays its welcome. It never feels drawn out. It is a really good, very well done battle, and MAPPA did a phenomenal job animating it. 
Yeah, I feel like they finally leaned into what worked well for balancing CGI and 2D animation because I could actually see things now <laughs> in reference to how, like, in the, the final season or throughout the final season, I feel like it was very difficult to see some of the action. But here, I think it's very clear on the screen what's going on, even with all of these different wielders of the Nine Titans uh, coming at the LD Avengers from every corner. As Armin's getting, uh, <laughs> as he's sucking off the Okapi and getting kidnapped, he passes by Emir, kind of taking a peek at the battle below, and he comments saying, or at least he thinks to himself, this isn't Aaron, it's the founder Emir that's resisting the scouts. I need like clarification on this because I'm trying to understand why Emir would be the one resisting the scouts. Is it because she wants Aaron to remain alive as long as possible? Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I feel like she, just like Aaron, wants events to turn out in a specific outcome. But I don't know, like, why it. That's hard to, hard to kind of. My only assumption is because Mikasa's heading towards Armin, which is on the back end of Aaron's Titan, where she actually needs to to serve the purpose that she does for Emir at the end of the finale mm-hmm. Mikasa needs to make her way to the front of the Titan in order to um to see Eren but I mean these these like resurrected Titans are still trying to rock Mikasa's shit at the same time so I don't know <laughs> yeah it's weird because later um it feels like when after Armin talks to Zeke and I know I'm jumping ahead um, and certain Titans uh, certain of the nine titans revolt against the other titans. Um, it's because Ymir wants to seek out a specific connection. Um, so it's kind of like she's doing one thing here, but then decides or does like a does a one eighty and decides to do another thing later on. Yeah, I have comments on that, um, so we can dive a little bit more into that. I'm all, as we're talking, I'm almost thinking too. There's that part where Bertolt's Colossal Titan, which is the kind of the next part of this battle, it comes out of nowhere. Uh, it chomps on Reiner, and then, you know, his mom freaks out because she sees it. But then Bertolt's Colossal Titan slams Reiner's armored Titan body into the bones and kind of rocks everyone's shit, mm-hmm. including the resurrected Titans. Like, everyone is knocked out, even Levi, except for Mikasa. And my my first thought was, okay, of course Mikasa's unfazed because she's an Ackerman, but Levi didn't go unfazed, and he's technically more talented than she is as a fighter. Mm-hmm. So do we think maybe Mikasa came out unfazed um, because Ymir needed her to remain untouched? Yeah, I could see that as a possibility. So I don't know. I think that's kind of like a, a gray area here is why exactly Ymir is sending all these resurrected titans out to stop the scouts. I mean, Armin's assumption is because she wants to see the end of humanity, and Aaron, Aaron is you know on his way to try and achieve that. Um, but we learn later on that there was a different goal that Emir had in mind. Yeah, like I said, this one's hard to rationalize. But uh, the only thing I can really think of high level is Emir just wanting to set certain things in motion in order to get Mikasa to the point that she needs to reach at the end in defeating Aaron. Before all of this, though, since you mentioned Levi, I'd like to point out, as he's my husband, though, <laughs> that he's putting in work as humanity's strongest soldier 
in navigating through all of these nine titan ancestors uh, and slicing the shit out of them. Even though he has less than 10 fingers now, um, he's still as adept as ever. He's got like 90% of a body. <laughs> it's not even 100% of a body anymore. <laughs> yeah. And like, he has one eye that's been slashed through and just bandaged to hell. But again, he he's pushing through and you got to give him credit for it. And specifically during this scene with you know Levi putting in work and the rest of the all the Avengers doing what they can, I like to point out the music because the music has just been such an integral part of this final season and it's done an amazing job in putting us into every moment. In this particular section, we hear a mashup of Attack on Titan, which is the theme composed for the series by Hiroyuki Sawano that was used in season one, as well as Ashes on the Fire, which has become the de facto theme for the final season, composed by the series' second composer, Kota Yamamoto. It's a mashup that I think perfectly complements this Titan assault and just means so much in being like a full circle moment for this series' musical score. And it's just one of a number of mashups that we'll hear throughout this special. Jumping back to where Bertolt's Colossal Titan appears... I want to note, do you see how tiny Bertolt's Colossal Titan is compared to Aaron's body? I mean, like a speck on Aaron's Titan body. Yeah. And Bertolt's Colossal is one of the biggest Titans we've ever encountered, right? I think his is bigger than Armin's. Yes, I think, well, I thought we might have discussed this in an AOT episode before, that the Colossal Titan's default height is always 60 meters. I thought it was bigger, though. Because isn't Bertolt bigger than Armin anyway? Yeah. Um, maybe there's a comparison between Armin and Bertolt's titans out there. But, yeah, I think I read in the wiki that it's 60 meters by default. Okay, maybe I'm I'm, like, misremembering. But either way, I mean, the Colossal Titan is, like, nothing compared to Aaron's Titan. It's it's kind of insane. I think that there's a lot of different shots of Aaron's Titan, but I think what really put it into into per perspective for me is when we saw that Colossal hanging off of his back and it was just like nothing compared to his Titan size. Yeah, doing a quick Google search, it says that, again, using the Colossal Titan 60 meters as a reference point, Aaron's founding titan is anywhere from 220 to 420 meters. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, just look at that gap in size. In the moment that all of the scouts and the resurrected titans are all hanging off of Aaron's titan body, um, John is holding on to Reiner, who's kind of like slowly losing hope because when does Reiner not lose hope? I mean, God, the guy just wanted to die the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and John says to him, hey, you know, we're scouts and we don't know when to give up. And I think Reiner hearing that and hearing that he's been accepted back into the group by being called, you know, a scout or we're scouts, that really resonated with him in that moment. And I think gave him hope that maybe he would get out of this immediate situation. Yeah, especially because Reiner has struggled with his own identity besides wanting to die at every moment. <laughs> um, so hearing this from John, I think, just confirms that, you know, like they're they're all in this together. And even though they were former enemies, and even despite the fact that Reiner was complicit in leaving Marco to die so many years ago, that 
they're just bros now because they're both united in a single cause and so that makes them comrades in the scout corps again and then finally after many many months of speculating carl's theory became reality when falco shows up with the what the wings of freedom basically (laughs) yeah and okay so this is the one spoiler that i ran into from the manga as the final chapters were releasing Um, it was an out of context photo of mikasa sprouting these quote-unquote wings and i didn't know what the like what the image was about and so i just quickly forgot about it because sometimes like if i run into spoilers and in a show or uh something that i really enjoy i'll just quickly scroll up and then put other things into my mind to think about so then this eventually fell off my radar then i saw it here again in the finale i was like oh shit this is what that image was and so it's not mikasa sprouting literal wings but it's just a cleverly placed shot to introduce the thing that I have theorized about since I think episode two of the final season, a flying Titan. Oh man, the satisfaction of this was great. I mean, they hinted at it in the final chapters part one, but to see Falco's flying Titan with the wings was so satisfying. Yeah, it's nice to see Falco get some like action in this fight without actually having to fight because that's definitely not something that he's looking forward to doing. He's meant to be the the saving grace. He's meant to be the rescuer, not the, the fighter. That's just not in his nature. So it's nice that his Titan was able to do that, was able to rescue his comrades. Although, you, would you say that he learned to take control of his Titan really quick? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and they only had one attempt because Kiyomi's fucking boat got wrecked as soon as he attempted it the first time so mm-hmm. yeah i don't know falco's really talented it took aaron a long fucking time to get used to the attack titan yeah because this would technically be his second transformation uh, uh, the first one was at the docks yeah but he wasn't even like conscious for half of that right <laughs> <laughs> well um we do also see annie and gabby are with him i don't know why gabby's there uh you know we, we'll shit on her later <laughs> <What>? <laughs> yeah I know we always joke fuck Gabby, but I think she pro- she provided some use here. She she fired one bullet and almost killed Armin in the process. I mean, it's fine. She she was there. Um, she was uh, part all of the hands team. on deck. Yeah, <laughs> but Annie, when she runs into Mikasa, asks she first asks like, "Oh, what? Where's Armin?" But then like stops herself and switches to Peak, and then Mikasa's like, "Bruh, it's okay." Armin's been captured and then Annie's like man your childhood friends are always getting captured and she's like yeah pretty much (laughs) it was a very odd exchange because they're potentially facing the end of the world they're potentially facing their own deaths and Mika says at this point where she's like I know that you like Armin I know that you have feelings for him why are you trying to play coy let's just be upfront about it but I think the heavier part of this conversation is when the group makes the collective decision that Aaron has to die. And you can tell how much it pains all of them to come to that conclusion and how much it pains them to say it, including Levi, who's like, there's so much shit that I wanted to tell Aaron off about. You know, like, I think that's Mm. his Sunday way of saying, like, I don't want him to die yet. I personally don't want him to die. But that is the only way out of this. Even Connie asks how they're supposed to win if they keep holding back. 
Yeah, I just love how Levi always finds an opportunity to give Aaron grief. Um, and I think he also drops one of the very few F-bombs in, at least in the translation, um, one of the very few F-bombs we hear in Attack on Titan. I also got to give my boy John some love because, as I've shared before, he's one of my favorite characters in Attack on Titan. He, in this moment, tells Mikasa directly. He's the only one that tells her, well, I think the only one that tells her directly, we have to kill Eren because she's obviously concerned about that, obviously not wanting to do that. But he says it with the most pained face that I have ever seen them animate on this poor guy. So like despite John's rivalry with Aaron and despite John having feelings for Mikasa, he recognizes that Aaron is basically one of his family members, just like the rest of the scouts. And he recognizes that Mikasa has feelings for Aaron and he knows how much it's going to hurt her. He's caring more about what Mikasa is going to have to go through with them killing Aaron than thinking like, oh, my rival's going to be out of the way or like, you know, I love Mikasa or whatever. So I think in that moment, he's rising above and making that tough decision, but knowing how much it's going to impact his friends. Yeah, I'm just reminded of that scene on the train where the remainder of Levi's squad sitting together and Aaron tells all of them that that he he cares very much about them and he wants them to live long lives. Even someone like John and his fucking horse face. <laughs> um, so I think it's not just, like you said, it's not just John um, seeing how this, or knowing how this is going to impact Mikasa, but knowing the morale that would be zapped out of this group in having to kill Aaron, even though they know it's inevitable. Uh, I think I also wanted to point out um, how Annie steps in and she kind of implores Mikasa to go after rescuing Armin um, instead of going after Aaron. Because I know Annie had asked Mikasa when they had boarded the Azumabito boat, like if she was willing to kill Aaron. And Mikasa didn't give her a straight answer, but I think Annie understood then how much Aaron means to her. And so I thought it was very thoughtful of Annie. Um, you know, because since Mikasa knows that Annie has feelings for Armin, um, Annie's been considerate of Mikasa's feelings here and saying, try to take the less lethal task at hand. Yeah, she's trying to separate Mikasa from the most difficult thing she's ever going to have to do, the thing that she doesn't want to do. She's protecting her, and that's really nice to see, um, especially because Annie's you know, she she could potentially be in that same situation. She has feelings for Armin, who is technically her enemy. There's, I mean, really in a, a different reality, Annie could be the one that has to face this tough decision that Mikasa is facing. So I'm sure she empathizes with her. So the group is on Falco, right? They're flying around. And then they kind of turn around and go back towards Aaron's Titan form. And Falco goes into this nosedive towards like when, when he sees the projectiles right he starts going into this fucking nosedive straight for Aaron with everyone on his back and I'm just thinking dude the g-forces that they have mm -hmm. to be experiencing they're holding on to the back of Falco with a bunch of rope there is no way they could hold on with just their hands I don't know how the fuck they're able to do that maybe Levi and Mikasa because they're Acker Ackermans but there is absolutely no way the rest of them could fucking hold on, especially Gabby. Yeah, I don't know. And also, like, what's, what altitude are they at where they can withstand that air pressure? Right? <laughs> <laughs> 
So another moment um, to give props to Mappa. I loved all of Reiner's armored Titan fight scenes. I think they were the most raw, the most brutal, um, just the hand-to-hand -hand combat that he has with all of the other Titans, especially because there's other armored Titans that are coming after him. I thought it was phenomenal. And despite the CG, it looked really, really good. Like when he just clocks one of them in the face with his forearm and just like slams him into the ground, that stuff was so cool to me because I feel like we get a lot of limelight for some of the other Titans, um, especially like the jaw or the cart where they're hopping around all over the place and, you know, ripping into things with their sharp teeth. Sometimes it's nice to just sit back and watch two Titans throw fists at each other because we don't really see that that often unless Aaron's fighting Reiner. Yeah, we only got a little bit of that at the docks before they departed for the rumbling. And not much of that in Liberio because Reiner got fucking rocked by Aaron back then. Um, Although I do have to be fair, and now that I'm talking through it, Annie's female Titan also does a lot of like hand-to-hand -hand combat. Hand-to-hand yeah. -hand combat. Um, so I don't know, maybe we, just, we haven't seen it recently where it's not like fresh in my memory. But either way, it was really nice to see the way that they choreographed all of Reiner's fight scenes. Yeah, I mean, it's the finale. Why not go all out and, and really show the prowess of both the female and the armor titan? I also have to call out um, Peek because she she's been impaled this whole time by the Warhammer Titan, the very previous wielder of the, the Warhammer Titan. Um, she's been impaled towards the front of Eren's founding titan, um, but she breaks out of her titan form, does that kind of funny dash down the trident's um, <laughs> staff, and turns back into the card titan because the card titan is known for its endurance, and of course she's an honorary Marleyan, so she's she's built for these situations. But props to her for her situational awareness and just finding the right time to strike and acting as a distraction because she was removed from all the strategizing that the LD Avengers were doing. I know that in the past I've I've wondered why people were so drawn to Peak, but I will say this was Peak performance. Wow, I was gonna say, <laughs> have you changed your outlook on Peak? <laughs> oh yeah, I guess I've kind of softened my tone with Peak and yes, with Gabby, but it's because they're all on the same team right now. They're fighting for humanity or the last remnants of humanity. So you gotta give credit where credit is due. Yeah, I agree. Peak's multiple transformations, that was really impressive. She put Aaron to shame with her repeated transformations. Mm -hmm. Aaron could only dream to be able to do that many transformations that quickly. And, you know, she says it's part of the, the Cart Titan's endurance, but also her own endurance, right? Like she's, it's, at some points when she's transforming, I think when, when John ends up grabbing her and they're both flying with the ODM gear, she's like, just give me a second. Once my, it was, I think it was like her leg or her arm, right? Once that heals, I'll be able to transform again. She's literally like losing limbs, losing blood every time she's attacked, but she just powers through it. So yeah, props to her. And then we have a really, really good moment that just <laughs> kind of reminds you of the world that the main trio grew up in, really the scouts grew up in. And that's when Mikasa and Annie are still on Falco's um, Beast Titan back. And Mikasa is trying to explain to Annie which Titan captured Armin. It was 
It was so good. It was so frustrating, though, but yeah, it was so good. great. I was like, that's right. They grew up in a world where they knew nothing except for what was inside of those walls. So Annie's asking Mikasa which Titan captured Armin, and Mikasa says, it looks like a pig. And then Annie's like, I don't see one like that. What kind of Titan is it? Which of the nine is it? And she's like, I don't know, maybe Beast or Jaw or maybe even Cart. And then I think um, Connie sees it and says yeah. like, oh, it's the one that's running right there. And then Annie's like, oh, that's an Okapi. And Mikasa's like, what the fuck is an Okapi? Because <laughs> she doesn't know, again, anything outside of the wall. She only knows the animals that she's come into contact with or has read about in probably like the limited literature that they have on parodies. I was like, damn, that was a great callback to everything that we experienced in what, the first two and a half to three seasons of Attack on Titan. Yeah, great contextual awareness by Isayama and, of course, the writers for this finale. Because, uh, yeah, the, the scouts are still, or like Eldians are still learning so much about the world. And to include just this little tidbit uh, as a reminder, provided for a great source of temporary comic relief. Wanted to kind of touch upon this Okapi Titan. Um, I was doing a little bit of research and I read that the Okapi is also known as a forest giraffe native to the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Africa that plays a large role in their folklore and mythology and is also commonly associated with peace and strength, which I think are fitting characteristics for Armin to possess in his goal to bring the rumbling to an end since he is currently stuck in the Okapi's mouth. Do they have long tongues? I'm looking up a picture on Google and I don't see any Okapi tongue. <laughs> I just need to know if they have like a tentacle-like tongue. Actually, yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, yeah, oh, yeah. actually. <laughs> Okapis have a long prehensile tongue that they use to dexterously grab branches and leaves. Holy shit, look at that thing. Ooh. <laughs> okay, they, they got that pretty accurate, but I hope no one starts looking up some Okapi tentacles. <laughs> I mean, if you just Google Okapi tongue, there's some really interesting pictures. Like, it's like long and and like kind of swirly at times. So that, that's uh -huh. interesting. Mm-hmm. I was actually going to ask what an okapi was. I've seen it. I just didn't know that's the name of that particular animal. So then that makes me wonder, was there a titan wielder, like an Eldian, that was in maybe that part of the Attack on Titan world? Because we do see, mm -hmm. we know that there are other cultures, right? Like it's not just the people of Marley and the people of Paradise. There are other countries, there's other cultures um, in this world. It very much reflects our own real world so i wonder if that's a hint that like other eldians have made it to other countries and kind of embraced those pieces of folklore or those animals because part of the reason that zeke has his beast titan as a fucking monkey is because he likes to throw baseballs right yeah and i think well there was a hint that uh, as a child one of his playthings was a, a monkey toy. Yeah, I think it's a combo of that plus the fact that he loved playing catch with Cassaver mm -hmm. and the monkey is like fucking Lanky Kong with those arms. <laughs> I also think, and these are there are examples in uh, Reiner and Annie's father that some Eldins are of mixed blood. So. Oh yeah, like Mikasa. Yeah, right. Wait, so, so sorry, did it say that the Okapi, what kind of Titan was it? Is it a beast? Um, so I think they're speculating that it was a cart titan or a beast titan. 
I would say Beast Titan. It can't be a jaw, right? Because there's nothing it's trying to bite. It doesn't yeah. have the build of a jaw. Although I guess you could kind of consider what Falco said about Zeke's spinal fluid into play here, where if you know a part of one of the, either the heart or the Beast Titan's fluid was consumed by the other Titan, then they could possess the abilities of that Titan. Interesting. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's so cool to see these resurrected titans and what past generations have looked like. Um, that was that was interesting because I know that's something that a lot of us has, have speculated um, over the years. Is like, I wonder what other versions look like. So back to Falco um, and him flying around. We have Levi, who's pretty distraught in general because he's almost down and out as far as being able to continue fighting. He's, uh, you know, he's hopeless at this point. Not not hopeless, right? But he is losing hope. And then he's distraught over fulfilling every one of Erwin's orders except killing Zeke. And he kind of has a couple of flashbacks. He recalls their dream world of, um, you know, world without titans. Um, and that's what drove them to make some of these sacrifices, including the biggest sacrifice of death. And... He also comments that he doesn't regret choosing Armin over Erwin after seeing the same look in Armin's eyes that Erwin once had. And I thought that was interesting because I I don't think he ever really talked about his decision to save Armin. And I always wondered, like, was, I mean, it was a difficult decision for him. It was probably painful, but did he ever, you know, hate himself for that? Yeah, and there were a couple instances in this final season where Levi really wrestled with what his mission was in the bigger scheme of things and considering what Zeke and now what Aaron has wrought upon humanity. Um, I know he says in this scene, like referring to Erwin and their fallen comrades, did the lives you give in sacrifice exist to crush other lives underfoot? And I think this is a direct callback to an excerpt from Erwin's suicide charge in the episode Perfect Game, where Erwin says, it's us who give meaning to our comrades' lives. So even at the precipice of humanity's destruction, Levi is still questioning if he made the right decision in choosing Armin over Erwin and if he's making the right choices in trying to defeat Aaron and bring about a semblance of humanity's victory that Erwin had so desperately sought for before. As the battle continues, we see Annie um, teaming up with Mikasa, Mikasa, Mikasa. <laughs> and there's this moment where uh, I think Mikasa uses her ODM gear to attach to Annie's arm, and then Annie whips her and like kind of sh- like launches her forward. And again, mm-hmm. I'm thinking the G forces on this, but I guess she's an Ackerman, so maybe she can withstand it. But this makes me remember. One of the only times in Attack on Titan where I just like can't handle watching it and it just it chills me to the bone. And that's when Annie's female Titan is first introduced and she grabs that scout by the ODM gear gear mm-hmm. and starts twirling them. And again like a yo yo. Yeah, the fucking G forces snaps that that poor guy's back in half and I'm just like, Oh my god, that one was brutal and she slams him to the ground at the end. <laughs> I'm like, Oh my god, that's like one of the the toughest moments for me to to watch or to remember so when i saw that i was like oh if annie just uh instead of whipping mikasa forward decided to start twirling her we may have a very different outcome 
well, it's Mikasa. She's right. She's not going to do that, but I'm like, you know, of, what yeah. if? <laughs> she's one of humanity's strongest, so I was going to say, like, she could withstand that. Oh, man. Um, I also thought it was kind of cute and funny that she says, stop running, Okapi. Yeah. <laughs> As she's chasing after the Titan. So I think at this point, we switch to Armin um, and his, his, I don't know, his subconscious of sorts. And he's pissed at himself for not being able to wake up. You can tell he is so heavy with the responsibilities that have been thrust upon him over these past few seasons. And he's never once felt worthy of any of that or that he's repaid all those people that have helped him along the way. Because, um, I mean, honestly, he was generally one of the physically weaker members of the scouts. Physical stuff is not his forte. Um, it's all about brains yeah, for more Armin. Than- makes up for that in his intelligence so it's kind of i don't know it's like tough to see him so mad at himself because i i feel like he's proven himself time and time again that's the exact reason erwin kind of saw him as his successor maybe not officially saying it but you know kind of hinting towards that or maybe he did say it he didn't say it right he didn't officially appoint armin as like his successor because it was no, Hans. but i think he was yeah but i think he saw the potential Erwin or maybe Le- like Levi. Yeah, like Levi didn't saw re- the potential. Yeah, Armin. earlier Levi says he doesn't regret his decision to choose Armin because clearly Armin has proven himself, but for some reason Armin just doesn't see that in himself because I think he's always felt third place, especially among his like main trio. He even says, um, I'm skipping ahead a little bit when he's talking to Zeke, that you know when the three of them as kids would run up to the tree, he'd always be lagging in, in last place. So that's kind of his own view of himself. But I think he's done more than enough to prove himself. Yeah, Armin was just being a little bitch here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, okay, this is totally side note, but the sound effect that they chose for when Armin slams his fist on the ground, that sounded really fucking comical. Like, it did not fit yeah. at all. I was like, that sounds awful. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the punching bag noise that they use when people are fighting each other in movies. Or like something you hear in like a Western cartoon. It just mm-hmm. did not fit at all. And it was too abrupt, too loud, too obvious. I'm like, I don't know who picked that sound effect, but that was not a good choice. I think the intention was for Armin to, again, use his intelligence to figure out that this isn't um, a, a reality right now that he's looking at, um, that he's actually in the paths. But I just think the execution wasn't there. So as this chapter comes to a close, we see that the rumbling is continuing all over the world. And we get um, scenes of, you know, a mass amount of people up against a cliff trying to decide, like, do we jump? Do we try to stick this out? People start panicking, pushing the people on the cliff off of it. And then you have that moment where the mother is holding her baby and she falls, but somebody saves the baby. And I just like... The baby part had me on edge. That shit hits different after <laughs> you become does. a parent. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, please no. Um, really, I think the 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 imagery that Isayama is trying to show us is that the despite everyone trying to desperately survive and sacrifice other people because they're shoving other people off the cliff to make room, everyone agrees to protect the baby and move it away from the water. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in Armin's conversation with Zeke. But, you know, that's that's the core here is that no matter the situation, humans will try to do the right thing generally. 
Yeah, this kind of reminds me of uh, Mr. Browse at uh, Nicolo's restaurant um, earlier in the season where he was saying something like, it's up to us, us being the adults, to shoulder the sins of the past. And that's what this crowd is doing, kind of accepting their fates or trying to come to terms with it. But knowing that you know future generations shouldn't have to bear witness to that or, or have to deal with any of this, which is, I think, why they're trying to save this baby. And I do love how this scene is shown in black and white, but the baby is shown in the, the color red, which evokes the similar use of color in the film Schindler's List, because I believe that was also shot in black and white, but there was a shot of a girl who I think was also clothed in red that was a focal point in one of the scenes. Um, kind of fitting because Schindler's List was based on like the Holocaust in World War II and Attack on Titan kind of uses imagery from World War II in its storytelling. Um, so a uh, connection that kind of makes sense there. Um, before all of this, I want to point out like the fictionalized versions of real-world countries because the rumbling goes through what appears to be Japan or this universe's version of Japan, India, Africa, even, I think, the Tower Bridge in London. That's what I thought it was, too. And then I researched this, I think... There was a scene where the rumbling goes through this universe, this universe's version of Cambodia's Angkor Wat, if that's the right pronunciation. Uh, but going back to this baby, little wait, wait, hang on, the feasibility of that. Can we talk about the the reality of this? Because we're saying mm. the rumbling initiated on Paradise, right? Yes, and then went outward. Because you're thinking like the walls are 360. So the Titans break down the walls and let's just say they all go out like the, the, the direction they're facing, they just all spread out, right? Like 360 degrees. Mm-hmm. And so they're making their way around the world. It has not been that many days that the rumbling yeah. has been taking place. And as insanely large as the Colossal Titans are, they're not moving that fucking fast. I mean, think about how long it's taking Aaron and his Colossal Titans to make it to where like... Um, that cliff is where like Onyan Capone and, and Annie's dad, like all of them are standing. They're not moving that fast. So you're telling me these but they're taking large strides, but they're still not moving fast. Like mm-hmm. they're not, they're not covering a lot of ground that fit that quick. Cause think about how long this battle has been going on. I feel like they would have gotten way closer, way faster because th- think about the size of the earth. I, I have no mathematical, um, backing to this. I'm just thinking like as realistically as I can. I don't think there'd be, first of all, enough Titans to cover the entire world, right? Because mm-hmm. we're talking about an infinite, like, complete line of, of colossal Titans. There can't be any gaps. Otherwise, people would be able to go in between the gaps and survive. And then also to be able to traverse the entire world, unless their planet is smaller than ours, <laughs> to traverse the entire world in the time that the rumbling has been taking place, which I don't think has been that long. That's kind of a lot. I mean, think about how long it takes an airplane to get halfway across the world. Maybe, yeah. You, you, you have to say that the rumbling is occurring at the speed of an airplane flying. <laughs> That's really fucking fast for them to be able to traverse that the planet like that in the short amount of time that I think the rumbling's been going well, on for. Remember how fast they were swimming in the waters when they reached the Marlian shore? Yeah, that's I they think. were swimming faster than they were walking. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm saying, like, since they can swim so fast, that's how they can get to these countries so quickly. 
but still, we're talking like traversing continents worth of like landmass. Yeah, I don't know. We'd have to talk to like a mathematician. If or... anyone knows of anyone, <laughs> like maybe on Reddit, because you know, like that subreddit, they did the math. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to know if someone actually like calculated this. I'd, I'd be so curious to know how long it would actually take to have the rumbling traverse across the 80% entire of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm very curious about that. But anyway, when I was watching this unfold, I was kind of like, eh, doubt a little bit, but that's fine. <laughs> I guess to provide a little bit of context, um, Paradis is comparable to Madagascar off the coast of Africa because I think the map of the world of Attack on Titan is basically our, our world map flipped upside down. Oh, so okay. if you think about like Madagascar as Paradis, and then consider how far these titans have gone. Yeah, it's it's been a pretty <laughs> pretty lengthy journey. But going back to the baby really quick, because this is trivia that I do know, is that the baby that's swaddled in red is the offspring of the pregnant woman that Aaron passes in the final chapters, part one. I don't remember this. It's when he finds out that he has to activate the rumbling, and he's walking along the Marlian docks. Oh, okay, yes, now I do remember. And yeah, she was with, like, her husband? Yeah, and she was she was pregnant at the time with this baby. And so <laughs> now oh. I think she falls off the cliff to her unfortunate death, but at least her, her baby lives on. Yeah, oh, that's sad. And to wrap up this chapter, <laughs> um, we have Armin and Zeke finally meeting, and I never fucking realized that Zeke didn't even know his name. Yeah, that was kind of a mind-blowing thing. Yeah, because I'm thinking back, I'm like, yeah, they haven't met. But like, he also just doesn't know Armin's name at all. Does Zeke know Mikasa's name? He had to because he saw Aaron's memories. And they were also talking in Liberio because Aaron asked Zeke about if Ackermans had headaches. Yeah. But Zeke said in his research he never stumbled upon that. So I think Aaron was talking to Zeke about Mikasa. So he knows about Mikasa, at least. Well, I think he knows of Armin because he says, hi, you know, Aaron's friend. But he doesn't know his name. So I'm like, wouldn't he have come across Armin as they were walking through Aaron's memories? Yeah. I think he's just so emo right now that he doesn't care to address yeah. him properly. <laughs> moving right along, or should I say moving forward to Chapter 4, A Long Dream, Turns out Zeke's Christ is not the best partner to build sandcastles with because he's just become a mopey, woe-is-me emo kid with a very bleak outlook on the travesty that he calls life. But when Armin Dancho opens up a discussion about the second grade creative writing class prompt, what does freedom mean to me? The beast's small heart grew three sizes that day after hearing the colossal commander's free verse poem. And so the duo summoned the ghosts of comrades past in the Prince of Persia Sands of Time to Tatakai against the founder and become the ultimate titan bench mob for the LD Avengers. Zeke sneaks a peek at his enemy with the bandaged cheek, allowing low-rise Levi to fulfill his long-delayed dinner plans with the Beast Titan by cutting off just the right amount of neck meat to satisfy his cravings, thus bringing Operation Dualshock Rumbling to a grinding halt. Johnny Boy then commences Operation Brain Blast by blowing Eren's head off to Kingdom Come, followed by an alley-oop to Armin Dancho wherein he creates a colossal combustion to give Eren Jaeger Monster a real ankle breaker. 
as well as a rib, pelvis, clavicle, and overall skeletal breaker. But just when the Eldia Avengers think the worst has passed, it is in fact yet to come, as the founding titan's creepy crawly critter rears its ugly head and releases an eau de titan perfume upon the visitors at Fort Salta in Wound, turning the Eldian cohort into pure titans to assist the critter in reuniting with its owner, Eren Jaegermonster HD 1.5 Remix, who just doesn't know when to fucking quit because he keeps fucking moving forward. While Armin begrudgingly puts on his colossal boxing gloves again and gets ready to rumbling once again with his best frenemy, Deathwish Reiner, Annie, and Peek the Putrid keep the creepy crawly critter and pure titans at bay by taking the You Shall Not Pass formation from Gandalf's playbook, and the vaccinated Ackermans take to the skies on Falco Punch's jaw titan, where Lowrise Levi proposes that Eren needs to be sent to the Shadow Realm once and for all. This of course triggers a massive migraine for Mikasa, but before she can reach the Tylenol bottle, she ends up in a dreamlike alternate reality with Eren Jaeger Jungkook, wherein the pair escaped from the clutches of World War Paradise in their pursuit of puppy love. Eren implores his Acker woman to forget about him once his titan time is up, to which Mikasa comes back to her senses and responds with, Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. She begins her rage against the Jaeger machine, capitalizing on Lowrise Levi's dentistry experience by getting to Eren's human body in the mouth of the Jaeger Monster HD 1.5 remix, where she kappas the fucking detate out of his head before sealing it with a kiss. Emir bears witness to the lovers in parodies with a tender smile, so you definitely know that she fucking ships them. As do I. I can't fucking wait to talk about that, but <laughs> I won't jump ahead. I'll save it for that moment. So chapter four starts off with Zeke talking to Armin and explaining a very interesting concept about that creature, which they pretty much just call life. And it says that life, or he says that life was able to continue because it multiplies. So there's this really interesting conversation about the objective of the living to be multiplying which is different than inanimate objects because they cannot multiply. And at this moment, they they um, splice in a scene of that baby on the cliff continuing to be saved by everybody, which I think signals to what Zeke is saying that humanity will do whatever it can to survive. And Zeke is saying that fear is the punishment for life. And that's the reason that it continues to multiply is the fear of death, the fear of becoming mm -hmm. extinct. But I think through this conversation, Zeke kind of realizes something else from Armin's perspective because Zeke questions, why try to stay alive when you'll eventually die? What is the point? Is it just because fear is forcing you to continue surviving? Is it because fear is the punishment, you know, for life itself? And Armin inadvertently tells him no it's happiness happiness is that driving force that's the reason you stay alive and in this moment armin finds a leaf in the sand and kind of holds it out and shows it to zeke and explains you know this is my happiness this reminds me of the times that i got to be with aaron and mikasa and that meant so much to me and i absolutely love what isayama does here he has Zeke see that same object, that same leaf, but from his point of view, it's a baseball. Mm -hmm. Because to Zeke, that baseball represents happiness. 
Um, it represents all the times he got to be with Kasavar and just, you know, enjoy the simple moments with his mentor, with his father figure. And the fact that Isayama is showing the same object looking different to each person shows us that happiness has a different meaning for everybody. So what Armand identifies as happiness is not exactly what Zeke will identify as happiness, but the common thing is that both of them have something that has made them happy. And that, and Armin says, I may not need happiness to multiply, but it's still incredibly precious to him. And that is what continues his drive to want to live. Hopefully I did that justice. No, yeah, all of that makes sense. And to, just to inject my point one, I want to point out that Zeke kind of sounds like Kenjiro Tsuda here. He does. I thought that too. <laughs> I think that's what uh, his voice actor, Takehito Koyasu, is kind of emulating that this sort of low tone that Tsuda Ken is so good at. But, you know, it fits with Zeke's bleak outlook right now. Uh, but yeah, the second thing, uh, I really love how Armin opened up Zeke's eyes to realizing that freedom or the freedom that they're trying to attain is something as simple as finding happiness in minute things, even in this senseless and hateful world that is driving people to fear death. Another thing I wanted to bring up with this conversation that Armin is having with Zeke is that Armin is kind of seeking more information about Ymir because um, he's opened up that sort of can of worms as he's observing the events happening on Eren's founding Titan. Zeke says there was something she couldn't let go of, referring to Emir. Eren managed to understand what it was. Although I think in reality, just to clarify, Eren does not understand what Emir is searching for, right? But right. she believes that Eren is going to lead her in the right direction. And to slightly jump ahead, but just to help bring things full circle for everybody... Aaron understands that she's bound by love to King Fritz. But even then he says, I don't I can't understand the deepest depths of her feelings. I don't mm. understand why she's bound to him through that love. And so yeah, with Armin asking like, what is Emir's objective? And then Zeke being like, I don't fucking know. <laughs> she wouldn't tell me. I have no fucking idea. He says like Emir sided with Aaron because Aaron was the only one who understood her. Mm -hmm. But even then that was like, to your point, that wasn't the case. Aaron still didn't fully understand her. But I think Emir recognized that Aaron at least was a means to her end, which is Mikasa. Yes. Interesting. So interesting. This is like... This is mind-blowing to me. <laughs> Attack on Titan ends up being a love story. Attack on Titan Go blows figure. my mind. Who would have thought? <laughs> As we jump out of paths and back into the battle, Gabby has her one and only thing that she does this entire time, and that's shoot the Okapi Titan. And yes, she got a headshot. Yeah, she's good with that sniper. We saw her lob Aaron's head off um, in an early part of the final season. But I was thinking like, that's really close to where Armin was in the Okapi's mouth. Like he got shot through the eye, but like a few inches lower and she probably would have killed Armin. Yeah. Well, it's Gabby. She just points and shoots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, whatever. Like at this point, I know Gabby's never going to be my favorite character. She's never going to be a lot of people's favorite character, but at least she's mellowed out in this final part. At least she's like not screaming she's no at people. Yeah, she's not, you know, calling everyone island devil. She's learned that there's more to the world than what, you know, what the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? 
propaganda and with mm-hmm. the propaganda you know infused in her brain so that is something that's character development right like i don't know if i personally feel like she's redeemed herself but there is some redemption here and it's nice to see her working hand in hand with everybody to you know to take down the common enemy well just to comment on that a little bit i don't think any of these characters at this point are redeemable because they have so many sins that have racked up for them but here they're just dealing with the hands that they are dealt and again just working together to bring about the net positive good for humanity Um, in the midst of all of this uh, i think we have to mention that some of the ancestral nine titans are beginning to revolt and help out the LD avengers starting with bertolt's colossal titan and then followed by porco and marcel's jaw titan and emir's jaw titan and Kruger and Grisha's Attack Titan, and then Salver's Beast Titan that we mentioned earlier. This is the first time we're seeing it. Um, it is a, a sort of sheep or a ram, I guess. Yeah, and didn't we get a hint to that in the backstory between Zeke and Cassaver? Because like, didn't he have like a ram something like His a toy or something? His child had a toy in the room. It's a bighorn sheep. Okay, that's that's what it is. Oh, okay. Also, like the Easter egg of. Kruger, when his attack titan shows up, he's crushing a titan in the same way that he did the battleship back in season three, part two. Oh, yeah. And didn't he like crack heads when he attacked the, the Fritz family? He was like smashing heads. Oh, no. This is Kruger's attack titan. Oh, oops. Yeah, you're yeah, right. Sorry. Grisha, yeah, I think that's also. Grisha smashed a bunch of heads. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, all, all the titans are joining the LD Avengers side. And once Armin's cut out of his his okapi clutches or okapi cage he explains why yeah and it's all thanks to zeke so we kind of go back to paths um and armin said you know moments ago whatever because i know time stands still there right uh but moments ago zeke um and armin were able to speak to all of those fallen comrades um because paths connects all Eldians, right, past and present, and it doesn't have any point in time, so no one's really dead or alive. And Armin makes an interesting comment that Ymir is seeking connection, which is why she's connected all Eldians through paths. She wants something from them. And so I want to kind of break this down. She is seeking connection. That does make sense as to why paths brings all Eldians together, because she wants connections to happen. Um, mm. Whether that's for herself or among the Eldians. So that explains... Because Paz has been largely unexplained up until this point. So that explains why she created it in that way. But my question is, why does she want connection? Why is she seeking that? And the only thing I can think is because she had been so isolated in her life um, you know, up until her death. And even then, she's been isolated in Paths. The way I looked at it is it's her trying to seek out Mikasa specifically that connection and she's had to go through all of these paths (laughs) in order to forge that connection and set in motion the events that happen in the climax of this finale with Eren and Mikasa. Yeah, that makes sense because um, while she didn't know she was searching for Mikasa, she knew that she was trying to search for, let's say like, a different kind of love we'll, we'll call it mm-hmm. that we'll dive that more into that when we get to that part of um the finale but you know the, the love that she's seeking she needs the connections to kind of 
view that through everyone's own personal experiences. And it's not until she meets Aaron, right, and has that conversation that Zeke was referring to earlier, where Aaron basically gets her to side with him, and you finally see Ymir's eyes because she's mm-hmm. like, "Holy shit, this is what I've been looking for for, for two thousand years. years." Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting concept as to why paths is the way that it is and why it does the things that it does. And we get some closure here. We get Zeke reconciling a bit with Grisha, saying, I still fucking hate you, but you know, I will at least thank you for allowing me to eventually get to these experiences that I call happiness. Um, we have Armin kind of reconciling with Berthold and apologizing to him for kind of taking his his experiences away and his opportunity to experience things because, you know, Berthold died in the end. And I think that's kind of what leads to all of those resurrected Titans to fight back. Although that concept still is weird to me because I'm like, I always pictured it, not always, but I pictured it as Emir creating copies of these old Titans because they've already existed, right? So she can just make another copy of them through the Warhammer power. Mm-hmm. But what we're saying here is like, no, these are the souls of those actual Titan wielders. And that's why they're able to make their own choices when they're brought forth in paths. Yeah, because in paths, life or death does not exist. Um, So yeah, imagine that their souls are still being kept here. But since like Emir realizes, oh, this is an opportunity for for missed connections, (laughs) that I guess she's almost allowing these Titans to revolt so that she can push closer to the connection that she's been searching for. Yeah, because it's weird to me because I'm like, if that's their original soul, why would Berthold ever fight Reiner Nanny, right? Like, wouldn't he immediately, like, once he's resurrected, wouldn't he be like, no, fuck that, I'm not going to attack mm-hmm. my friends? Wouldn't, like, any of them? Like, why would Marcel and Porco go after Peak? But that's why I initially thought that it was just copies of those titans that Ymir was putting out there because she knows everything about them. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like it is their actual souls. So maybe they were under her manipulation at first and then Armin and Zeke were able to sway them a different direction. It's a little vague for me, but I get the core of it. One other question I had is, you know, Zeke's talking to Kasavar and saying, oh, I'd love to be born again to play catch with him. Um, is that implying, or is like Zeke implying here that he longs to see Kasavar in, I guess, the afterlife of this world since, like I said before, paths is a realm where neither life nor death exists. And if so, is that the same realm in which we see Hanj appear after her death with the other fallen comrades? Ooh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I figured Zeke was like, I just want to fucking die already so I can be, you know, in paths with you. Because we'll we'll talk about that in a second, what happens to Zeke. Um, but I didn't put that together, two and two together with what Zeke is saying and what Hanj experienced. Right, because that's kind of, that's an interesting thing because you would expect Hanj and the fallen comrades to appear in paths along with these other souls. Which they could. Mm-hmm. It's but just then, they only called forth the Titan wielders. Yeah. Well, th- it's just an interesting thing to think about because I... I remember in the part one special, I had asked, like, because Armin mentions, is there, there must be something beyond the walls that we don't know about. And I was thinking, oh, is it, is it this Eldian afterlife? It isn't. 
that's confirmed in this this finale. But I'd love to hear people's thoughts about what Zeke is implying here with wanting to play catch with Kasava again and the implications of, again, seeing Hanj and the fallen comrades in this different sort of realm. I like how Paths keeps each person appearing the way they did at the moment of their death because Marcel is so much smaller than Porco. But mm. I think Marcel is Porco's older brother. Yes. So yeah, because Marcel died as a kid, he appears as a kid in Paths. So just like an mm -hmm. interesting little bit of detail. Oh, by the way, I think you were mentioning like if everyone just appears back in Paths when all is said and done, Paths no longer exists once the power of the Titans is erased. Yeah. That makes so, sense. Yeah, it's I think if you know Zeke dies, he would have to go to a presumed afterlife or reincarnation. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. good point. <laughs> yeah. Um but yeah, speaking of Zeke, he's just hanging off of a, a bone and just happily waving to Yeah, I <laughs> to don't Levi. understand how he manifested out of the bone. I don't understand that at all. Where the fuck was he? <laughs> Did he fuse with Aaron's Titan body? Like I don't I don't I mean, get yeah, it. Yeah, he's his royal blood is needed. So maybe he can just travel to whatever point in Aaron's skeletal structure. But I just thought it was so funny how how happy-go-lucky he is here because he's he's reached his nirvana. And I especially love the what he says to Levi. I'm the one you wanted to see, right? I didn't want to see you, though. <laughs> just... I mean, yeah, he's like he exposes himself to Levi in more ways than one because, yes, for the second time now, he's absolutely butt-naked. Um, and he has that funny moment, but then he kind of goes into more of a serious, like not overly serious, but a more serious tone because as he's waiting for Levi to reach him, um, and, and, you know, accept what's about to happen to him, he stops and he looks out at the landscape and says, this weather is lovely. If only I'd thought that way sooner. I think this is Zeke realizing that he was so full of hatred instead of just finding happiness in the small things like Armin was able to. Maybe he wouldn't have been so hellbent on killing so many people and maybe he wouldn't have tried to proceed with this plan. Maybe his life could have turned out very different if he just stopped and enjoyed the small things like the lovely weather. And just fucking playing catch a ball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then that's short-lived because Levi finally gets to fulfill Erwin's last command or order or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Such a clean cut, and I feel like this was constantly foreshadowed, um, not just in this episode, but even when they're on the airship after the raid on Liberia where Levi says, like, I like to save my my best cut for last or something. I forget the exact line. Um, but, yeah, full circle moment here, although it's a very unexpected and sudden death for Zeke because I feel like... They I were... wouldn't say it's unexpected. He knew. The second he popped out of there and kind of waved to Levi, he's like, good, now he can fucking kill me. I guess unexpected in the sense that I feel like the series was pushing towards this grandstanding battle between Levi and the Beast Titan again because we saw their first encounter or their first battle where Levi slices the shit out of the Beast Titan um, back in season three. Um, and then a brief repetition of this in the forest of giant trees in this final season but zeke here goes out with not a bang but a whimper and i think it's because this is subverting expectations hey. <laughs> and what we'd expect out of this fight but i think that's fine 
because again zeke's reached his, his sort of happy place he's found peace with himself and so he really has no need to see levi as an antagonist um but it does kind of feel like how shows like game of thrones flip the script in certain character arcs or deaths Jumping back into the scouts and their part of the fight, um, we have John panicking um, as he finally reaches the bomb, detonates it, but does so kind of like, obviously he's not happy about it. He's freaking out and he calls Aaron a suicidal freak. And I kind of, I, I kind of stopped and thought about this for a moment. I'm like, why is it John of all people that detonates this bomb? Um, is it the rivalry? Is it, you know, something going on here? And then I thought about it further and I'm like, why is it Peak that first tries to detonate the bomb? Why is it John and Peak that are the two teaming up to try and blow up Aaron's head and separate it from the rest of the body? It's because Peak doesn't like Aaron and John, as I mentioned, is his rival, <laughs> right? Like John cares about him. He recognizes him as his, you know, friend, his family. But he, at the end of the day, he is still Aaron's rival. So of all of the people fighting, I think it makes perfect sense that Peek and John are the ones trying to blow up this bomb. That's a really nice catch. Yeah. <laughs> the only other person I could potentially see um, falling into that same group is Reiner. Mm-hmm. You know, like kind of like as a way to get back at Aaron, or because they've always they've also kind of had their own mini rivalry in the later parts of the show, but nothing compared to like the funny, um, you know, expected rivalry that John has with Aaron. Quick note here with the music, the Attack on Titan theme by Hiroyuki Sawano plays here again as John goes for the detonator, which I think is fitting in that he's bringing down the most powerful Titan of them all. And as we're talking about characters caring about one another, um, when Armin is finally ready to blow this shit up with his Colossal Titan transformation, everyone else moves away. Um, but you have this shot of Mikasa's face and she looks so pained. And I love this because I I talked a lot about this in the final season reviews that we've done. It's so nice to see how much Armin and Mikasa care about each other. Like they're a main trio for a reason. It's not just that Mikasa cares about Eren and that Armin cares about Eren. Mikasa and Armin care about each other as well. They're always defending each other. They're always sticking together. And in this moment, Mikasa knows like Armin's about to do something that is physically very difficult for him, but also mentally and emotionally very difficult for him. He's never enjoyed being the Colossal Titan. He never asked for this. And he hates all of the lives that he's had to take in this form, like take as in like kill people while when he transforms. And she's worried. I mean, her other best friend has just been kidnapped. They just got him back. And now he's going to have to be left behind to do what no one else can do in this moment. Reiner's there, though. He's just holding down that parasite or whatever that organism is. Yeah, but, I mean, Mikasa doesn't have the connection <laughs> with Reiner that she does with oh, Armin. I was saying, like, oh, Armin's not there alone. Reiner's there, but he's, like, struggle bussing. <laughs> yeah, poor Reiner. <laughs> um, and there's another question that I have about this moment. Um, I think Armin is, like, preparing to transform. He's thanking everybody for helping them. But we get a very brief shot of what I believe is Historia giving birth and then her husband waiting just outside the room. Why did they choose that point to splice in that moment? Because she was going into labor at that moment. I'm just like, I don't know. I was like, when I first saw it, I was like, what the fuck was it? I thought it was like 
Armin, because you know how Armin's blonde. I'm like, mm-hmm. was this Armin's mom giving birth to him yeah, back in the day? Yeah, that's what I thought first, too. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it's got to be Historia. Yeah. I, I took it as, you know, as as one life dies, in this case, Aaron's, although that's not really the case. Uh, another is born. And I think it also with the symbolism of the founding Titan being taken down by showing Historia giving birth in a way it represents how she is no longer bound by the founder's vows or, you know, this ritual of having to inherit the founding Titan um, in order to preserve Eldia or, or whatever. Okay. That makes sense. Cause I was like, what the, f-? it happened so fast. You're like, wait, what the fuck was that? <laughs> right. Cause yeah, she no longer has to be sacrificed um, in order to continue the, customs and traditions that have been keeping parodies away from the world and keeping them suppressed for for 2,000 years. Once the explosion happens and the group thinks that Eren is dead, Migasa gets yet another headache and then realizes that the last thing Eren ever said to her was that he hated her. And I'm like, oh, shit, you're right. I, that hurt. When I saw that part, I was like, no, that's sad. That's actually the last time the trio actually had a conversation together too yeah it was the last time they were together until the end when they're together yeah because i know we were talking about wanting to see them all together one more time to to talk it out that didn't happen here and fortunately their reunion as we'll see is one of mourning but it's okay because aaron's not dead (laughs) he then becomes (laughs) the colossal titan um, and then Armin, you know, doubles back towards Eren to stop him. And I just thought to myself, didn't they say that the Colossal Titan can't move that far because it expends so much energy that as it keeps walking, it starts to like shrink or like shrivel up? What? I swear that happened with one either Berthold or Armin's tar- Titans. I thought it was if it emits too much steam that's what makes it lose its stamina mm, okay maybe that's what it was there was something about like there's a limitation that the colossal titan has where it can't travel that far although look at the fucking rumblings maybe i was i'm misremembering <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's i mean i think mikasa's headache was a hint that Aaron wasn't done with yet although it's kind of sad because the ld avengers reunite with their families uh, and it's just for a short, brief moment until the shit really hits the fan in the next scene. My question, though, is Aaron returns in this sort of colossal titan form. How is he able to do that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know. Because like, let's think this through. He has not consumed a colossal titan because Armin is a colossal titan. I doubt he can... Well, okay, there's the potential that he could consume Bertolt's resurrected form, but is there Mm. actual spinal fluid for him to consume and then acquire that ability? Plus, wouldn't that kind of ruin the idea of like there only being nine Titans because then like Ymir could just resurrect a bunch of Titans and then Aaron could eat them all and suddenly have like all the abilities? Right. And so I think this is something we speculated in the final chapters part one review is wondering if Aaron can act independently from Zeke's royal blood. And I feel like that might be an answer here because, you know, the, the parasites or whatever Reiner was trying to hold down is way, way far 
away, way far away from Aaron right now and is trying to reunite with him. And I, I would assume like that's that's the connection, the I guess sort of royal blood or founding Titan connection. But I think when Aaron originally goes up to Emir and grabs her, he says something along the lines of "Lend me your strength." Right? Oh, so it's basically just Emir bending the rules for him. I mean, she can do whatever the fuck she yeah. wants, right? So I think that might be why Aaron's suddenly in a random colossal Titan form. Because he now has the ability to transform into whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah, and I mean, that would be the smartest form to take because he has to go up against Armin. Mm-hmm. So why not be a colossal as well? But then I love John's line when, <laughs> when Aaron appears. Yeah, that was so fucking good. Like, he just takes one look at him and he's like, ah, oh, of course. Yeah, figures. Well, that figures. <laughs> <laughs> and for John to say it of all people, that was great. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we get... We see everyone reunite, as Carl just mentioned, um, with their families. It's very heartwarming in that moment. Um, but then as the squiggly thing makes its way to them, they start to inhale a bunch of smoke. Connie immediately makes that connection. He's like, oh, shit. This is what happened in my family's village. So this is like one of the few moments where my heart actually dropped. Because <laughs> <laughs> even before Connie realizes it, I knew what was about to happen. I know they were cause they distinctly show the squiggly thing like emitting gas, but mm-hmm. then they don't say anything, and they just like the smoke kind of fills the environment. And you have like Annie's dad um, talking to her, and like you know talking to the general dude, whoever he was, um, and Secretary like, Muller. Yeah, and saying like let's work together despite everything that's happened. Um, and then of course like they turn against each other later after everyone turns into pure titans, but. Watching that all unfold, I felt very heavy about all of that, but my heart sank when they showed John and Connie standing there arm in arm, just accepting their fate, because I didn't think about that in that moment. I was like, oh shit, the families are going to change. That sucks. But then I was like, wait a minute. John and Connie don't have Titan powers. They're also going to change. What the fuck? That killed me inside. I was like, no, they got so far in this story. Yeah, for me, it was a mix of, like, these families just fucking reunited, and and now you're going to rip that away from them. And then with John and Connie, you know, with having their arms around each other's shoulders, I almost <laughs> I almost got teary-eyed here because I, just that scene of them accepting their fate, and I think Connie, one of them says, like, so this is how it ends, and they they just welcome it warmly, and... I think John says we'll entrust the rest to our comrades, which is kind of something similar to what Hans says um, to Levi and the rest of them and leaving it up to them to finish off the rumbling while she stays back and, and defends them. Um, you know, it, it's almost like another cycle of, of lives being lost, but knowing that whoever comes after them is going to, again, give their lives meaning but for it to be Jean and Connie, I was like, oh, man, that hit deep. And there was that brief just like comment that Connie makes to John about, you know, this is all your fault. It's, it's because of you. We decided to save humanity. And he references the night that they burned the corpses. You and I had different like interpretations of that, right? Because I thought that he was referring to when Marco died because weren't they actually cleaning up bodies 
after that whole like massacre Mm -hmm. and that's how john found marco and they confirmed that he was dead yeah and then i thought it was after erwin's suicide charge with the amount of scout casualties that incurred from that but i think yours makes more sense because connie says to john that it was his fault that they got stuck with having to save humanity implying that they joined the scouts after that incident yeah, it just, uh, it was kind of like vague. So I was like, okay, what is he referring to? I don't actually remember night, a night burning corpses. I just remember like the cleanup that they had to do after the whole Marco incident. Not like just his incident, right? But like when those Titans came through and killed a bunch of people. But I'm also glad that we got a few more pure Titan weird runs. There were some good ones in there <laughs> after everyone transformed oh, yeah. and they started running to the squiggly thing. One did like a weird twirl. Yeah. <laughs> And as that's all happening, too, we kind of see Aaron and Armin throw hands as Colossal Titans. And it's like the first time Armin's held his own in a fight against Aaron. Because last time they were punching each other, um, Aaron, like, rocked his shit, didn't he? Yeah. So this is the only way that Armin can really hold his own (laughs) in his Colossal Titan form. Because now he actually has strength and not just intelligence. (laughs) And then elsewhere, we see Reiner, Peek, and Annie kind of holding the fort down. But I think it's Reiner who first sees the pure titan forms of Gabby, of Connie, and John, and even his mother, which I know by now he has a death wish, but I'm sure he wants that wish to really come true at this moment. Uh, But he, he says, when will our torment end? Um, as he comes to terms with all of this. Well, going from that very horrible moment for the scouts, we jump into what is one of the best moments for me, and that's the alternate reality between Eren and Mikasa. I'm like, holy shit, what is happening here? So this is obviously not real. It's kind of like a dream state of sorts for Mikasa. Um, But immediately I'm like, wow, Eren looks totally different if he stopped being moody and cut his hair. It's K-pop Aaron. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I read somewhere that the way that Mikasa and Aaron see each other in this sort of alternate reality is how their respective characters want to see each other in this perfect world. So like the actual physically the way that they look and the clothes that they're wearing? Yeah. So, so Mikasa, Mikasa obviously is not into Moody Aaron. She's yeah. not all about that. <laughs> she wants K-pop Aaron. And so... Aaron wants just regular kind of sh- longer hair Mikasa. <laughs> it was just funny because he's the one that told her to cut her hair for safety reasons, of course. All right. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is essentially what would have happened if they had run away together. If Mikasa had told Aaron her feelings in the earlier conversation, um, the flashback conversation where he asked her, what am I to you? They would have chosen to run away together. And I do feel bad because that reality means that they would have abandoned Armin (laughs) because they're like, Armin's frantically looking for us. I'm like, oh, that's kind of sad. But this whole thing was just like so amazing to watch. Seeing the two of them just in like a comfortable setting, being together, um, they hug. Let's fucking go. They fucking hug. Oh, that's spicy. Yes, that is lewd as fuck. <laughs> um, yeah, it was It was just really nice to see what could have been, but also really painful to see what could have been because that's a reality that will never come to fruition. 
But then Aaron ultimately tells Mikasa to throw away the scarf, to forget about him, to be free. We even get, you know, a cloud, not a cloud, um, a shadow of a bird flying overhead when he says that to her. And ultimately, Mikasa defies him, defies everything that he just told her to do. And when we jump out of this dreamlike, dreamlike state back into the battle, Mikasa takes the scarf out of whatever fucking pocket could fit that thing and then ties it around her neck, which is interesting because we last saw the scarf when she folded it up and seemingly put it away. And even Annie asked, where's the scarf that you normally have? But here she's had it with her the entire time, which I think symbolizes the fact that she's had Aaron in her heart this entire time, despite everyone telling her, forget about him, kill him, move on from him. It's not the same Aaron. Well, I'm trying to jog my memory. Um, Mikasa folded the scarf in that storeroom. Then that chick who was like obsessed with her took the scarf and then she like sustained injuries from... The, the shit that happened in Shiganshina when the rumbling. And I think Mikasa took the scarf from her. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. See, this is why it's good that you rewatched everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For context, I rewatched the entire final season and final chapters part one in preparation for this review. And man, that was a, that was a fulfilling experience. <laughs> um, yeah. Before we, we get into this climactic scene where Mikasa confronts Eren a couple of things I wanted to point out. The whole headache thing, I think I talked about earlier, like Aaron had lied to Mikasa about the headaches. But I think the headaches are actually linked to Emir because she's trying to see things through Mikasa's eyes. Like maybe in search of that connection that will truly set her free from the chains of being bound to King Fritz. Okay, so that makes sense because... I was confused when Aaron said, oh, the Ackermans typically get headaches when they activate their powers. But I'm like, I've never seen Levi get a headache. Mm -hmm. So then it was all false. It's just Mikasa getting headaches because of her connection to Ymir. Yeah, because I mentioned earlier, Aaron talked about this with Zeke in Liberio. And Zeke confirmed through his research that there was never any indication that the Ackermans suffered through these headaches. Right, okay. So Interesting. It was, yeah, it was the unknown research is because Ymir was the one who's directly doing it. And I mean, that makes sense because Aaron lied multiple times in that last conversation saying that he hated Mikasa, that the headaches were a thing, basically like just trying to spew all these lies to push away his friends and to try to change the outcome or maybe continue setting things in motion. Um, so yeah, that that certainly makes that makes sense. And this whole alternate reality, this dream sequence, I think, is a soft confirmation, of course, that he loves Mikasa and cares for her deeply. But then we'll see the extent of that love in this next scene. Last thing, what I love about this scene is it's a reversal of the waking up from a long dream and then subsequently crying scene um, that we see from the beginning of Attack on Titan, episode one. And it's also brought up in the introduction to the final chapters, part one, where Aaron wakes up and Mikasa asks why he's crying, but the roles are reversed here. So I appreciate that. Another full circle moment. And right before the climax here, we get the Ackermans teaming up um, to go for Aaron. I mean, you got Levi 
that scene of him, again, props to Mappa, that scene of him flying toward Aaron's colossal titan and dodging all of the debris and the boulders and everything. Like, Beautiful. That was incredible. Still, I still think that the Wit Studio moments for Levi and his ODM gear are a little bit, like that's that's like cream of the crop. Like that's mm. the, the best of the best. But this is very, very close to that. They did a really, really great job. It looked so cool. And, you know, everyone's out here saying, oh, Levi can't fight. He's too injured. But then he still killed killed uh, Zeke and attacked Aaron and cracked open his teeth so that Mikasa could, you know, do what she needed to do. He's humanity's strongest soldier, even in his worst condition. Deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> and then Mikasa flies into the Colossal Titan, Aaron's Colossal Titan's mouth. How did she know that he was in the Titan's mouth, though? I don't fucking know, actually. <laughs> and I, maybe this is also because, you know, Eldians are all, all connected through paths, but I don't know if it was like an intuition or premonition and how Mikasa is so undeniably linked to Eren. Yeah. And also, uh, it, this is a, I think this is a full circle moment because back in season one, Eren is eaten by that Titan and there's a shot of him in the mouth of the Titan. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. That <laughs> wild plot twist that hooked everyone into the show. <laughs> right. So why not bring that back here in his final moments? Well, she reaches him, um, and we have one of the most bittersweet moments because it's all in slow-mo. It looks phenomenal. And as Aaron opens his eyes, the very last thing that he sees is Mikasa as she... Uh, in slow-mo, slices his head clean off his giant-ass colossal body. Which contrasts with, again, the first instance of Aaron's POV in the series because when he wakes up from that dream, the first thing he sees is Mikasa. Damn, and let's go! The last thing that he sees is Mikasa. Um, I also noticed his eyes were closed until Mikasa enters the Titan's mouth. And the way I looked at it is that though he is directly he knows that he's directly responsible for the rumbling and everything that's come to pass in the series it's still a sequence of events that hurts him to have to carry out but he finds solace in knowing that there's one person who will unconditionally love him despite the cruel task he was set out to achieve and that's mikasa and it probably symbolizes him wanting to close his eyes to all of this just to try and find some escape from the horrible things that he's doing but ladies and gentlemen it happens after mikasa slices his head off it's a bit a bit awkward right but after she does that they kiss and i'm like let's fucking go well she kisses canon They they kiss together. They kiss. He needed help. He needed assistance because he didn't have any limbs. <laughs> but they kiss. It's canon. Let's fucking go. I have shipped them since day one of Attack on Titan. I am so happy. And even Emir's happy because you pointed out something that I didn't even notice. I was too enthralled in the kiss part to notice who the fuck was behind them and the fact that she was smiling. Yeah. She ships them too, and this is the moment where her eyes are fully revealed. I know that they were revealed when Aaron grabbed her in paths, um, but here there's a softer tone to it. Um, so she has finally found the connection she was seeking. I'm going to ruin this moment, though. Uh-oh. Well, prior to this, when Mikasa is about to slash Aaron's head off, she has this really weird smile on her face. 
know what it reminds me of? That Scarlett Johansson meme from Marriage Story that you always like to send. Oh, or she's crying? <laughs> no, because that looks like she's like dying on the inside. Mikasa was like... It's the same she expression. She was like smiling, kind of like, you know, it's she's so happy to see Aaron again, but also she's about to kill him. Yes, so. but <laughs> it's the same exact expression. Someone <laughs> out there put a comparison photo of Scarlett Johansson from Marriage Story, put it next to Mikasa here. It's <laughs> that's that's what I pictured. But all that aside, yes, it's a a bittersweet moment as Eramika is officially canon. Let's definitely talk about Aaron's death. But before we do that, I want to um, take a moment to acknowledge the spoiler that I came across. Actually, wait, I missed the other one too. So the first mm. spoiler I came across, let's just let's, let's pause here. The first spoiler I came across um, after the manga ended was when Zeke gets killed by Levi. I saw a panel, you know, of course I opened Twitter, me unsuspecting, you know, opens Twitter and the first thing that's at the top is the panel where Levi is like blazing towards Zeke and then chops his head off. So I knew that was going to happen. But then um, there's another point where I open Twitter, again, unsuspecting, and I see somebody, I, I don't have the save, so I'm just trying to remember it, but somebody posted the image of Aaron and Mikasa when they're um when Dina Fritz or Dina Fritz's Titan is coming towards them and then Aaron's of course wrapping the scarf around them and there's that like really nice shot of them in the field or whatever mm -hmm. they posted that and then just wrote canon and I was like what <laughs> I was like what so of course of all the things that I could be spoiled about with Attack on Titan this one I had to find out more so I opened the comments and everyone I'm just scrolling everyone's like it's canon canon finally it's canon no no competition here it's canon sorry Historia it's canon <laughs> <laughs> and I was like what the fuck so then I clicked on the Attack on Titan hashtags I was just like I just got to see a little bit more just got to satiate wow, my curiosity really a little bit more tempted here. I needed to know because I don't even care if I'm spoiled by this I needed to know that it, they were canon and um I then saw someone else post the manga panel of Aaron's severed head and Mikasa kissing and I was like I don't understand what the fuck is happening here but they're kissing and that's all I care about and then I closed it but I was like I, that's all I needed then I was happy it was like the one and only time in my life I was happy about seeing spoilers because I cared more that they were canon than about being spoiled that they were canon didn't you also say that you thought Historia was the one watching this in the background? Yes, I noticed the person in the background, and in the manga, it looked like Historia from my brief like view of that panel. So I was like, "Oops, sorry, Historia." I was like, "That's awkward," <laughs> but that's, that's not the case. It was Emir. Historia's villain origin story, <laughs> but no, it's Emir, and again, she ships the fuck out of them. Um, it's funny you just see all these spoilers related to headless bodies yeah <laughs> um but to get one more lighthearted moment out of this i i saw a meme where it's the manga panel that you mentioned where zeke or levi slices zeke's head off and then there's another one photoshopped under it where levi is holding zeke's head and kissing oh yeah <laughs> that's uh, so fucking funny <laughs> yeah um if i find that manga panel i will share that in our discord and that's a plug for our Discord. If you haven't joined it, the link to join is in the description. So as the as this chapter comes to a close and Aaron has officially died, let's talk about his death. Um, I, I feel like I've figured for a while that Aaron was going to die. I don't know if others kind of 
got that feeling or predicted that or suspected that. But for me, there was simply no other outcome for Aaron. After everything that's transpired, after every choice that he's made, there is simply no other appropriate outcome for Aaron than to die. It's either he dies now or he survives and then he they, they kill him later as a criminal or some shit like that, right? Like mm-hmm. he he's going to die either way. There's no way Isayama could feasibly write a convincing way that Aaron stays alive and can live a happy, carefree life with Mikasa after everything that he's done. I mean, he killed off 80% of the entire world. He has to die. I don't know. Did you did you f- hold out hope that Aaron was going to somehow survive? Or were you kind of like me where you're like, the deeper you get into the final chapter, or not even the final chapter, but the final season, the more you're like, he's going to fucking die. No, I, I have the same thoughts. Um, Aaron is one of the most fascinating protagonists that I've seen in anime and one of the most complex. Um, but considering the things that he's done in the rumbling, like you said, he is just far beyond saving. And, and there's a reason for that because he is trying to reach a specific positive end game. And I think I mentioned this in one of our AOT reviews. Um, a mission like Aaron's where it's to end generations of vengeance and hatred it's not an easy task and it demands the largest price which is his own humanity and his own soul and so for him to have the chance to walk away from all of this and say everything's fine now like humanity's saved and you have me to thank for that i just think like story-wise and even just thinking of it in real world terms I don't think it would sit well with anyone for basically a war criminal to go unpunished. So I think Aaron, unfortunately, had to suffer the cruelest form of punishment, which is his own demise. And yeah, as much as in my own head canon, I, I wish he was still alive. He would, you know, was still able to spend time with Armin and all of the scouts and, of course, be in a relationship with Mikasa. There's just, there's no way around it. And so I think back to the throne room scene where he kisses Historia's hand and unlocks all of his memories and has, like, a fucking freaky-ass look on his face. What do you think shocked him more? The memories of him decimating 80% of the world or the memories of him dying? Because he knows that his life is going to end. I mean, he probably sees the moment that his head's getting cut off. I think it's the moment where he realizes that through the rumbling, he is going to decimate a majority of the world. And his struggle with that, you see in the final chapters, part one, in the beginning, as he's walking along the Marlene shoreline. Because I think at that point um, in season three, um, he starts to become more mellowed out. And even when he's pointing across the sea and he's saying, um, if we cross the sea, will there be more enemies there? I, I know I'm paraphrasing that. But it's like our enemies are over there. Yeah. Um, he says it with such a depressed look on his face because I think he knows through the memories what he has to do in order to can bring about the greatest good. It's interesting because Reiner's wanted to die this whole time and Aaron's like, nah, I know I'm going to die. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's something that I caught in some of our rewatches. So for anyone who's not um, not aware, part of our 
Attack on Titan special event, um, while we were waiting for the story to kind of come to a close, we decided to rewatch all of the Attack on Titan seasons, but then also watch the OVAs. And in the Lost Girls OVA, which was multiple episodes, I believe it's episode three, somebody's talking um, about Aaron dying. And I think they're talking to maybe to Mikasa about it. I don't have the details written here in my notes, but all I wrote was that somebody's talking about Aaron dying. And they say that Mikasa can't do anything to stop it. And I think it's like theoretical, right? Like if Eren were to die, Mikasa, you can't do anything to stop it. But just the fact that Isayama infused that, although I don't know if the OVAs play off of actual manga content, but either way, you know, the fact that they put that in there, they were hinting at exactly what was going to happen at the end. And then in the uh, final season, the final chapters part one, I believe, when they're in the plane that Onyakupon is flying, Reiner says that, and they're all talking as a group, Reiner says that if he were Aaron, he would want someone to stop him, but then looks directly at Mikasa as he's saying that. So I don't know if that was Reiner intentionally looking at her, saying like, Mikasa, you're going to have to be the one to do it, or if, you know, that was like Isayama's direction to just kind of hint that Mikasa is going to be the one to have to end Aaron. Yeah, now I want to like rewatch the entire series again and see all the things that point to Mikasa's eventual confrontation with Eren. Um, but yeah, that, <laughs> it's a, it's a heavy burden to bear there too. Just like with Eren having to activate the rumbling, the line, by the way, that I paraphrase is if we kill all our enemies over there across the sea, will we finally be free? Um, and now I think about his reaction to that line so differently. Uh, whereas before it was like him seeing that and saying, oh, there's more enemies out there. But th- th- that one key line, like, will we finally be free? And him knowing what's going to happen is like him thinking like, oh, I have to commit all of these atrocities in order for this condition to come about. You know what I mean? Like just the magnitude of that line thinking back to it. Yeah, and it also makes me think like the the final gift that Mikasa is able to give Aaron is his freedom. By killing him, she frees him from everything, mm-hmm. basically. And I think maybe that's part of the reason that she's awkwardly smiling at him when she's about to cut his head off is because she's happy to see him, but also, like, I can finally free you from all of the pain, but also I don't want to do this. Scarlett Johansson. (laughs) And in the final chapter, Toward the Tree on That Hill, shortly before the LD Avengers' previous pit stop at Odiha on the way to the rumbling road trip, Aaron Jägermeister takes Armin Dancho for a trip down memory lane and into the land of the ice and snow explaining his secret agenda to turn the LD Avengers into Earth's mightiest heroes free from the Titan's grasp while he gets booed all the way off the world stage. Though he isn't entirely sure where Mikasa factors in Emir's grand anime scheme. The conversation turns into a discussion about how everyone and their mom fucking shipped Eremika before Armin comforts his beleaguered brother-in-arms for the burdens he's bared promising to see him again in Hell's Paradise as his memory of their chat room is erased until Eren's inevitable death by Ackerman. With Mikasa cradling the head of her spurned lover in her arms, 
The curse of the Titans placed upon the Eldians is broken and turns them all back into boring, dumb humans, as Emer now finally knows the meaning of true love or some corny shit like that. After the two remnants of the AOT anime trio mourn Aaron Jägermeister's passing, Mikasa books the next flight to Paradise to give him an unsung hero's burial, while Armin Dancho takes credit for Jäger bombing the Jäger monster. Three years after Aaron's devastating rumbling road trip, the remaining 20% of Zawardo begins healing from its scars. While it seems very obvious that the Jaegerists still suck serious Jaeger dick and militarize their nation faster than you can say Second Amendment Titan. Nevertheless, Queen Historia, now a mother of one not baby Jaeger Jr., prepares to receive Armin Dancho, Johnny Boy, Connie Boy, Annie, Life Wish Reiner, and Peak the Putrid as LD Avenging Ambassadors to broker for world peace and tell the island the story of a young man who never knew how to pump the brakes because he just could not stop moving fucking forward. Elsewhere in Shigan Shonen Jump District, Mikasa enjoys a picnic for one under Eren's favorite tree, with only the Jägermeister's grave to keep her company. Before her grief can reach a tipping point, however, a bird with perfect timing stops by to do a quick fit check on her scarf. Mikasa smiles, believing it to be a sign from her knight in titan armor, as she observes the bird go off and fly to heaven. Finally, we bear witness to Shigan Shonen Jump District's transformation throughout the generations as visitors come and go from Eren's gravesite whilst Paradise advances to the age of iPhones, TikToks, and overpriced streaming services. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, Paradise is reduced to ashes on the fire in a catastrophic all-out war as nature moves in to reclaim the island for some prime real estate. Its first client a young nomad and their trusted canine steed, who check out the open house for Aaron's gravesite's arboreal abode. The attack has concluded on the Titan, but in a way, it has begun anew. Why? Because it's the circle of the tree of life. So the final chapter starts off with Armin and Aaron having a long talk that seemingly spans their whole friendship, from kids to young adults. And that kind of plays into the fact that in paths, there's no set time frame. It's, it's, it's all time all at once. So mm-hmm. they have all the time in the world, right, to, to chat and to catch up. And Aaron says, hey, let's take a walk. Let's visit all the places we never got to see together. And let me fill you in on everything that I've learned about Emir and, and what's been going on. And again, here, like with Mikasa's dream, I think this takes place in a setting where both of them envision the other in their most ideal form. So here it's like when Aaron and Armin were were younger and had this childlike innocence to them about the world. I think that's where Aaron wanted to start. And it was so nice seeing Aaron act like his normal self when he was talking to Armin. Like he was just shooting the shit with his bro. He was just laid back and enjoying the time they were spending together because in the final season, all we've seen, all we've known is emo Aaron. So we are reminded of you know what he was like when we were first introduced to him and seeing him in such a, a normal setting was kind of refreshing. But the, the talk is, it's pretty heavy. Like there's a lot that they discuss. So first off, Aaron confirms that he was trying to push his friends away and apologizes for that. And we called that 
a long time mm-hmm. ago. We knew exactly what he was trying to do. We, we just could not be convinced that Aaron actually hated Mikasa, that he wanted to fucking beat up Armin, that he didn't care about any of these people because it didn't make sense when his driving force behind everything really was to protect his loved ones. Yeah, I'm reminded with Aaron's confirmation here, a quote from the New Testament of the Bible, uh, which says, there is no greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 13. Um, thinking about this line, I think Aaron was capable of loving others and of loving his friends. But as we'll later learn in his conversation with Armin, he was incapable of loving himself for what he had become. Aaron then confirms that he was playing the villain in order to save his friends and to make sure that they were seen as heroes. And this plays into one of the biggest questions that we've had throughout the final season is do we, as the audience, or at least, you know, myself and Carl, do we still believe in Aaron despite everything that he's doing? Do we still side with him? Do we still believe in him? Do we feel like he's the hero of the story? And I would say yes. I I think I've kind of hinted at that throughout our reviews, but I still feel now that we have confirmation of what Aaron was trying to do, I confidently say yes. I know what he did was horrible, but I still believe in Aaron and I I still side with him. Yeah, I'm still hashtag team Aaron all the way. Even though he's a war criminal, I think he, he knew what he was getting into. And again, it was for the greater good at the expense of his own humanity and his own soul. And I know that we've we've mentioned how this is something we've theorized all along, just in the way that things were playing out in this story. But I will say that this scene and this revelation from Aaron relates to another instance, besides the Mikasa with wings, in which I was indirectly spoiled about the ending of Attack on Titan, at least uh, when the manga was wrapping up. And this is spoilers for Code Geass. Major spoilers. So skip ahead. I know Code Geass has been around for a long time, but if you're still trying to avoid spoilers, skip ahead a little bit with what we're about to talk about. And so the spoiler I'm referring to is that at the time of the manga's conclusion, I was seeing on social media and especially Twitter that Lelouch from Code Geass was trending. And having watched Code Geass... I think around the time that the manga was ending, maybe a couple months beforehand, we had done our Code Geass reviews. I had an inkling of where this story would go with Eren um, in, in being this sort of unsung hero. And I'll admit that it indirectly formed a few assumptions that I made about Eren throughout our review series. But I will say that the tragedy of Eren's story also reminds me of a major plotline in the Metal Gear Solid video game series. I'm not going to spoil that too much because I know Metal Gear Solid has recently surged in popularity with the MGS3 remake. So I'm not going to spoil which game in the series I'm referring to. But what I'm trying to say is that many of Eren's actions in the final season echoed this plot line. And so there are many other circumstances where I feel like this plot line is followed, like this unsung hero plot line is followed in other forms of media. And so all that to say is that this also further fueled my own assumptions about how AOT would stick its landing. 
I want to comment about that comparison, um, the end of Code Geass to the end of Attack on Titan. I think, I, I agree. I think there's a ton of parallels here. I have to say, though, I think Code Geass did it better. Just like the, <laughs> just the, just, just the end mm. part. Don't get me wrong. The finale of Attack on Titan is very good. I'm not trying to, to bash it or discount it. But just that, like, climactic finale with Lelouch when when he is killed and like the the revelation is it's revealed right that his plan all along was to be the villain in mm -hmm. order to save his friends and to save the the people um or the the elevens right the japanese uh that i think kogyash just did it better it was more of a grand finale it was a, a spectacle right like that at the time, before Attack on Titan came along, Code Geass was the anime, the greatest anime of all time for a lot of people. I think Attack on Titan may have taken that title from Code Geass, and I think that's totally, totally fair. You know, Attack on Titan has done um, some incredible things, but I also don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing that Code Geass had a splashier ending. I think that fits perfectly with that anime. I don't think a splashy ending for Eren would be a fitting ending for Attack on Titan. It just simply is not the way Isayama um, write, has written the story. There have certainly been some splashy and some epic moments, but he likes to do more of like the, the subtle mind-blowing moments versus like these grand spectacles that Code Geass is known for. So I think... There's similarities, but I think they're both tackling that um, finale in very different ways. I think I saw a comment on the internet somewhere that Attack on Titan is just Code Geass with extra steps. <laughs> I can see that, yeah. <laughs> Continuing on with Aaron and Armin's conversation, Aaron tells Armin that um, he tells him all about Emir, saying that he couldn't understand her saying that she was searching for 2,000 years to find someone to release her, and that one person was Mikasa. And Armin, just like the rest of us, was very shocked by that. Like, what? Mikasa, of all people? Well, really quick, the, the setting where this conversation takes place shifts to Aaron taking Armin to these exotic lands, which he shows them fiery water, lands of ice, sandy snowfields, um, the, the things that Armin had seen in his book way back when in season one. Uh, but yeah, Aaron learns when he grabs Emir and Paths that she was in love with King Fritz, which is what kept her bound to him for 2,000 years. So that makes me question, and I think we kind of answer this throughout this discussion, is that Emir was just orchestrating this whole sequence of events to get to Mikasa killing Aaron so that she could undo her obedience to King Fritz. Does that sound right? Yes. Yeah. And I feel like we should dive. Should we dive into that now? I feel like there's there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Why not? Let's move forward with it. There you go. So Aaron says, um, again, that only Ymir knows why, and he doesn't know what Mikasa did. Um, he says, uh, you know, that, that Mikasa is kind of Ymir's end goal in all of this. And yeah, I think it really is that Mikasa did the one thing that Ymir could never do, and that's defy the one that she loves. Aaron tells her again to forget about him and even go so far as to tell Mikasa to 
he tells Mikasa that he hates her, right, in the earlier parts of the final season, but nothing that he could ever do or say could get her to leave him. So meaning, unlike Ymir, who was never able to defy King Fritz in 2,000 years, Mikasa was able to defy Eren, the one that she loved, over and over again. So not just one instance of it, but over and over again, she was able to defy him. So... What's critical about this is that Aaron is basically saying Mikasa is the most important character in the entire show, kind of. Yeah. And he, he even says the outcome Mikasa brought about is what I kept moving forward to reach. So in some ways, I guess it's a, it's a plot twist, um, but it makes sense in the grander scheme of things. I just think it's interesting that Aaron knows that he dies at Mikasa's hands, but he, he doesn't know what she did to do that or to give Emir the sense of closure that she so desperately sought. And that one act, that choice was kissing Aaron at the end, right? It was love. Love. And the way I see this is Aaron was devoid of love since his mother's love was ripped away from him at a young age and left him on this vengeful path. Although we're going to learn a little bit later that as the founding Titan, he was the one who kind of orchestrated this death. Uh, but you know, the way I interpret it is that with Aaron enslaving himself to freedom, he was kind of bound by the memories of the past, present, and future to continue this cycle of hatred that he's created. But it was Mikasa's love for him that broke him from his shackles. And so I didn't realize this, but her red scarf is a literal red string of fate. Yeah, because hers and Aaron's destinies are intertwined. And all of this brings me to a quote or brings to mind a quote from the civil rights activist, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., where he says, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And that is what is embodied in the way that Mikasa saves the world. I mean, killing Aaron is a form of hate, but then her outpouring of love after that act is what redeems it. And I think it's not the first time that love has been talked about as the the solution to hate. There was also that moment between Kruger and Grisha in one of the um, flashbacks for Grisha, right? Where Kruger tells Grisha, when you get to Paradis, find a wife find love right you mm. need to find somebody to love you need to have a family and find someone to love otherwise this shit is going to continue forever and ever like that's how you break the cycle is find love and the, i never really thought much of that i just figured he was saying to grisha forget your old life you need to start a new life because you can't ever go back to marley at this point you can't ever go back to your old family you've been outed by zeke you've been caught by um, the Marlene government, you're supposed to be a Titan right now, right? Like, that's what I assumed he was saying, but I think Kruger meant so much more than that. He was trying to get Grisha to break that cycle. Grisha failed at doing that, but Aaron and Mikasa were able to do it, which I think is also why in that moment, doesn't Kruger say Armin and Mikasa are going to be- to save Armin and Mikasa. Yeah, like they're really important. He's like, mm-hmm. I don't even know who the fuck that is, but I got to tell you about them. So all of this- brings back to mind uh, I think I made an analogy in the final chapters part one um, to that's so Raven where Aaron knows the future like 
he can see the future, but he's having the scouts piece together the future that he sees and to see the outcome. But then he didn't really know the outcome that Mikasa would bring. So it's like his, his that so Raven vision wasn't too clear at the end. But again, like we know it as, as, as love. And for anyone who's interested, I stumbled upon a tweet from the user Whiskey Jack, and I think they articulate the power of love between Aaron and Mikasa in their tweet thread. So I'll share that on the Discord, or we'll share that on the Discord for anyone who's interested. I have to question, though. Aaron tells Armin that he doesn't know what Mikasa did to influence Ymir. But I like to think that that he does know when we get to the current timeline. So let me let me walk you through this. I, I basically want to justify that Aaron consciously was kissing Mikasa. Like he knew he, he had that closure, right? Because when Aaron is talking to Armin, he's in a certain timeline, right? Like he, he's technically in the current timeline, but what we're seeing here is him telling Armin about stuff that hasn't yet happened, but his memories only go so far to the point where his head's chopped off, right? So, of course, mm-hmm. he's not going to know anything after that. But when we get to that point in the story, I like to think that his brain was still firing signals for maybe, like, another second or two. Well, like a chicken's head? Right. Well, because <laughs> you, you hear about, like, the guillotines, right, in France. And, like, some people would have their heads cut off, but their eyes would still be moving for, like, at least a few seconds because it takes a, a little bit for mm-hmm. your, your body to actually die from that. Um, like you have a couple seconds of consciousness. So I like to think that maybe Aaron didn't know at the time he was talking to Armin what Mikasa chose to do, which was kiss him. But then his closure is not only being freed by Mikasa killing him, but then also he gets closure in his his love story with her because he's still alive for at least a couple more seconds and consciously knows that Mikasa is kissing him and then he actually passes away. Because if you think about it, when Gabby shoots Aaron's head off, He's flying through the air for at least a half second, and then Zeke touches him, right? But he was still mm, technically alive. Yeah. He was still technically alive, which is why when Zeke caught his head, they were still able to activate the founding titan, like blood, like you know Zeke's blood and Aaron's founding titan abilities. That's my that's my rationale. Okay, I need this. Just just let me have this. Okay, I just want there to be closure between Aaron and Mika. So when it comes to their love, I at least want Aaron to have that moment just have the kiss because in a, in a little bit we're going to talk about what he admits to armin that he doesn't want to die he doesn't want to not be with mikasa he wants to be with her he doesn't get to have that so i at least want to think that he at least you know had the kiss i guess it's a valid headcanon to establish no it's not headcanon it's real canon okay So speaking of that conversation, it progresses forward, and um, in the next section of their chat, Armin punches Aaron for pretending to not care about Mikasa, because he asks about it. Aaron plays coy. He's like, I don't know, whatever. Armin punches him. Love it, because he never really, you know, punches Aaron, except, I guess, when they're colossal titans. And this shows that Armin really cares about Mikasa. As I mentioned earlier, when Mikasa was concerned about Armin transforming into the, the Colossal Titan, you know, she she was worried about her friend being captured. He, in turn, is also caring about her. They've been a source of comfort for each other. They've been a source of support for each other because they're also best friends. So after the punch lands, Aaron finally breaks down these walls 
and starts crying. And there's a, a pretty heavy comedy element to this whole scene, but there's also some heavy things that Aaron is opening up to Armin about. He's crying, saying that he wants to be Mikasa's one and only. He asks Armin to not tell Mikasa any of this, but that he wants her to truly find happiness. He genuinely wants that, but he also doesn't want to die and not be with Mikasa. He doesn't want to leave any of his friends. And when you think about it, like it's incredibly sad because he's tried multiple times. And he says this to Armin. He has tried multiple times to change the future, to probably try to achieve a future that not only doesn't have genocide as part of it, but also one where he can survive and be with the people that he cares so much about. Because he's doing all of this for his friends. He's doing mm -hmm. all of this for Armin and Mikasa, and he doesn't even get to be with them at the end. He's sacrificing all of that. So when he's crying to Armin and like, you know, the whole thing is pretty comical the way that they they have it all unfold, but there's a deeper meaning to this. And it's Aaron's, like one of his very few desires in this world. Yeah, I think it goes back to Aaron, unfortunately, being a slave to freedom without getting to reap the benefits of it. There's, sorry, there's one more thing I want to say about this because I did see a brief comment from some person who... You know, they, they, they're allowed to have their opinion, but I need I want to like respond to it almost where they kind of say like, oh my God, Aaron is so selfish in this moment. He's saying he doesn't even want Mikasa to be happy. He wants to have her wallow over him for 10 years or whatever he said. So yeah, like he, he says that, right? He opens up to his best friend. He's, he's saying all these things about Mikasa and, and her forgetting about him. And sure, it seems selfish on the surface, but he's just venting. I don't think he ever actually says any of those things to her. In fact, he tells her to do the opposite, which is to forget him and to find happiness with someone else. Mm -hmm. But what he's saying to Armin is basically, this fucking sucks. This fucking sucks. I love her. I never get to be with her. And I have to potentially watch her move on and, and live some life, you know, maybe with other people. That's got to suck so bad for Aaron on top of everything else that he's sacrificing in order to save his friends. He can't even just have love which as you mentioned he's devoid of after his mother passes away so to that one random person again like this i just saw it and i was like that's an interesting take on aaron's thing but i gotta defend him in this moment the thing i was going to say i kind of came to this realization as aaron is explaining how he's pushing his friends away from him and saying that he hates mikasa um so that she can forget about him He's kind of taking a page from Reiner's book and becoming something that he's not, right? A crybaby? No, well, you I was know, like, Aaron's like, always been a crybaby. <laughs> oh, no, I was gonna say when he's pushing everyone away and and puts on that like stoic facade, none of it is true because again, he's he cares about his friends. It's kind of similar to how Reiner, like with the situation that came upon him of becoming an honorary Marleyan, even though it was a fluke because of what Marcel did. Um, Reiner had to adopt this warrior mentality, even though he knew deep in his heart that he 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 wanted a death wish. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot about that when he had like split personality disorder, basically. Yeah. So that harkens back to the line where Aaron says, "Reiner, I'm the same as you." It's oh shit. Yeah, you're right. Technically true. All right. One last thing I'll say. Probably not the last thing I'll actually say, but I'm gonna pretend like it is about Aaron and Mikasa. I'm like, you're telling me. Not only did Aaron ask Mikasa what he is to her back when, you know, they were talking on, on that hill, 
um, to see if there was a way to change the future. But he was also asking that because he had feelings for her and wanted to run away with her and wanted to see if she would confess her love to him. What the fuck? I just uh. figured... Like, I, you know, I, I held out hope as an Aaron and Mikasa shipper that there was more to that conversation. But I just figured, no, he's trying to change the future. You know, there's not much more to this. I was wrong. I, I What I wanted was actually what was happening. Aaron was probably half thinking, I want to change the future, but also half thinking, I really want to be with this girl. And I hope that she'll be honest with me about her feelings. And in that dream state, he shows her what would have happened if she actually was honest in that moment he would have run away with her i'm like what the fuck it hurts so bad as in aaron mikasa shipper it hurts so bad to know what could have been yeah fate didn't play out in his favor there well moving on aaron then admits to armin that he was a slave is a slave to freedom and no matter how many times he tested it he could not change the future and i do recall at the end of the first part of the final chapters Armin asks, kind of, you know, not directly to Aaron, but asks in general, Aaron, in what way are you free? And I think this is the answer mm -hmm. that Armin was waiting for. He doesn't directly ask Aaron that, but Aaron is answering his question by saying, I'm not free. I'm a slave to freedom. And then Aaron says that, um, you know, there's some unfortunate things about the future. The, the conflict continues even after the scouts do what they need to do. Um, there's Armin still holding out hope that one day everyone can learn to understand each other. We kind of get some inklings of that with the uh, the end of the finale. Uh, Aaron said that he wanted to level everything. I think he means this figuratively and literally because he's literally leveling everything with the rumbling. But he's figurat figuratively leveling everything because now with 80% of the population gone, the remaining 20% matches the, tw the same population size that there is in Paradise. And then everything kind of comes to a close as, you know, Armin blames himself for all of this. He says, I'm complicit in all of this. It's not just you, Aaron, because I'm the one who first put the idea of freedom in your head when I told you about the book. Yeah, so I think it's symbolized here with the objects that each of them picks up when the scene of the sea, which is a callback to the end of season three, turns into pools of blood. Um, Aaron picks up what looks like blood, gore, teeth, and guts, um, symbolizing his his enslavement to freedom. And then Armin picks up a seashell. That's another callback to the end of season three. Um, and like you said, it's him accepting the responsibility and putting the idea of freedom in Aaron's head that led him to this enslavement. But whereas Aaron was always looking off into the distance, again, seeing seeing the future and trying to make everything come into play and in exact motions, Armin focused on appreciating what they had accomplished in the moment. So it's the world from two different perspectives, which kind of symbolizes in one of Mikasa's famous lines, the world is cruel yet still beautiful. But I have to ask, because throughout this conversation, I think there's one scene spliced in where Aaron is born, and it's Grisha saying to Aaron, like, welcome to the world, you're free. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, like, why they infused that there, and was that actually the first time that freedom, the idea of freedom was put into Aaron's head? Or was it that he's... Because I'm trying to, like, t talk this through. So was it maybe Grisha saying you're free, as in you're not... 
like you're not in the situation the Eldians are over in Marley, or mm-hmm. was Grisha tr- was Grisha trying to say you're free in the same way that Armin was putting the the same idea of freedom in Aaron's head? Yeah, I don't I don't know what to really make of it if like it was this sort of combo of factors that planted the idea of freedom in Heron's head. Um, another question that I want to bring up is, and I think this is also controversial, is Armin asks Aaron at some point, like, why he couldn't stop all of these things. And Aaron says, I don't know, it's just because I'm a garden variety idiot who got his hands on power. I mean, it happens to a lot of people, right? People go... um not I would say hungry with power. They go power crazy, right? You get too much power and you lose sight of who you are. Yeah, because yeah, I think the fact that he says like I don't know why I did this is is what uh, I'm kind of wrestling with. I mean, I know he again he was enslaved to freedom, but just the fact that he say it, it almost implies like he could have done something about this, but he doesn't know why he didn't do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's weird because he also kept trying to test fate and see if he could change the future. Mm-hmm. Like he he was actively trying not to do it. That is really confusing. This one I don't know. This one I can't <laughs> rationalize in my head. If anyone has an explanation for that, please reach out. Let us know. The conversation does come to a close, though, as Aaron and Armin hug as best friends saying goodbye until they reunite in hell. I love this hug. At first I thought they were going to make out, but then they didn't. Um, they were just embracing. And I don't know, again, it, it's just such a nice conversation to witness because you see Aaron being human again. You mm-hmm. see him in a relaxed state. You see him joking around with his friend. You see him just hanging out with, with Armin. And in this moment, you, say, you see him embrace his best friend You know, in this, this hug that's signaling goodbye for a long time. We, we kind of miss this Aaron. We haven't seen this Aaron even before the final season because Aaron's been on this hell-bent mission for a long time. Yeah, and I think I just love the fact that Armin also bears the burden of responsibility by saying we'll be together forever in hell, which sounds really depressing, but again, I think it's because as much as these characters have done so much good for the world, they're far from redeemable. Um, and I think that's an important thing to to note in all of this, again, because it's scenes of genocide and violence prevalent throughout this final part, um, and you know it's it's hard to to justify that, but I think the fact that Aaron and Armin know that they are far beyond saving um, is an important thing to keep note of. We then have the first time the main trio reunites since Aaron rejected them. And this time it's when Aaron is dead. It's like, it's bittersweet because we've been dying, dying, no pun intended. We've been dying to see the main trio come back together. And we finally get that, but in the worst way possible. Sorry, to backtrack a little bit, um, the, the sequence with Aaron concludes with Armin waking up from the dream back on the boat in the final chapters, part one. Um, so it's crazy that he was talking to Armin all the way back then. Um, and then here, right before the trio reunites, uh, I think Falco's jaw Titan is flying over while Armin's looking at the sky and waking up from him having just defeated Aaron or with Mika 
or him helping Mikasa defeat Eren. It's a callback to the beginning of the final season in the first episode where Falco's laying on a battlefield and looking at the birds in the sky. I love that parallel imagery. But yes, going back to the trio, they reunite, but not in the best way possible. Mikasa asks if uh, Armin has also remembered their conversations with Aaron, and she says that she remembers the times Aaron came to see them. Now, I don't know if this is just a translation thing or what, but she says, I remember the times plural, Aaron came to see us. And it kind of makes me believe, and this could just be my own headcanon, but it makes me believe that he probably had conversations with Mikasa that we weren't privy to, that we weren't able to see and will never see. And that's fine. Like, I don't think we need to see that stuff. I think the dream sequence um, with the two of them at the cabin was plenty for, for us as the viewer. But I still like to think, you know, in paths, time stands still they had plenty of time to speak. I'd, I'd like to think that Aaron had conversations with Mikasa the same way that he did with Armin and with everybody, right? Like I'm sure he spent a lot of time talking to them because that was their last chance to do so. Yeah, I would love to hear the conversation that Aaron had with Connie or even with Annie. I know Peek was left out of the, the group chat. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just to see like how Aaron reconciled with each of those characters would be something fascinating to to watch. And I think Mikasa is, is strong throughout all of um, these final moments. I mean, again, she's holding the severed head of the person that she loves, her, her childhood friend, and she's calm even when Armin is breaking down and crying. I mean, even think about her choice, right? Because Aaron is talking about the choice that she made change things armin is talking about that same choice she could have chosen to just save Aaron like she originally wanted and has always done but instead she made the choice to kill him in order to end the chaos that was happening and i'm sure that was not easy for her uh, but then she eventually leaves to protect Aaron's body quote-unquote like his head right um, until the very end and ensure he has a proper burial because she knows that he won't have any respect if he doesn't you know if, if he's I don't want to say captured, if he's found, right, anywhere outside of parodies. Mm -hmm. But then we get closure for a lot of the characters. And first and foremost, I have to talk about Reiner. The Reiner redemption arc is complete. I have always rooted for Reiner, even when he seemed like a piece of shit, when he betrayed everybody. I was like, I'm still rooting for him. There's there's something about him that I just feel like shows he's a good character, shows that he's, you know, a good friend to the scouts. And we see this kind of redemption come to a close when his mother is so happy to see him. He's nervous that she's going to get mad that he's no longer the armored titan. And she says to him, you're you're the only thing I've ever needed or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And you can just see him break down. And I'm like, let's go. Let's go. I'm so happy for Reiner. I'm just like, I'm, I'm happy to see that a character so broken is finally able to find peace. Like he is able to reestablish his true identity as his mother's son rather than being something that he is not. Yeah. And he's still a member of the Scouts, according to John. Mm -hmm. There are a couple other moments of closure that we see where uh, Falco reunites with Gabby, although I think she like suplexes him in the background while Reiner's reuniting with his mother. <laughs> um, although, you know, I think... Falco's confessed her love 
or his love for her. And so hopefully that comes to fruition somewhere down the road. Um, Jean and Connie see a vision of Sasha, uh, which, you know, very touching seeing that that, that was their trio um, before she moves on to, to the afterlife. And of course, Levi, I think, you know, as much as Reiner has put his demons to rest, I think it's great to see Levi seeing the ghosts of his comrades and asking them, were you watching? And seeing this as the resolution they gave their hearts for as he, or as they salute him with the Sasageo salute. And then he salutes in turn, but he does so tearfully. It's the first time we see Levi crying. And I love like the animation of his mouth quivering. Um, very out of character, it would seem for Levi. But again, hearkening back to the line that Erwin said in his suicide charge in season three, it's us who give meaning to our comrades' lives. In Levi's case, he knows he made a choice with no regrets in being part of the scouts and fighting for humanity. And now I think he has rightfully earned his rest from all of these battles. Before we move on to the next scene, though, I think one thing that's important to note is that Armin says to Mikasa, the, before she goes off to bury Aaron's head, is the outcome you bring about through your choices is to erase the power of the Titans from the world. And I've said this before because it was a line that I took note of from season one, and it's a line that is repeated at the end of the final season, part two. The erasure of the power of the Titans is in line with the goal that Aaron outlined for himself that Zeke misinterpreted to be his acceptance of the euthanization plan. This is a separate line from the line I was talking about, but when he says to Zeke, I'll put an end to 2,000 years of Titan domination. But the other line that was key from season one and the final season part two is where Aaron says, I'll kill them all. I'll wipe every one of them off the face of this earth. And I love that. That's, That's another full circle moment where Aaron accomplished the task he set out to do. And I think that's kind of what you and I were speculating would be Aaron's ultimate outcome or his ultimate goal, because that's been ambiguous throughout the final season is like, what is Aaron actually trying to achieve? And you and I have always kind of uh, suspected that it's an outcome where Eldians are untouched, but the Titans are what's removed. And then, of course, Armin gets what he wanted for a long time, which was a chance to talk things through with the quote-unquote enemy. And he does so by um, stopping the Marleans from shooting all of the Eldians and even, I guess, in a way, protects Mikasa by calling himself Eren's killer. I think that's Mm -hmm. protecting her from being sought out by people, right? By making her presence too known, because I'm sure she just wants to live a quiet life at this point. But <laughs> quiet then, life. Yeah, but then also protecting her, because I doubt she ever wants to remember that she had to kill Aaron. So if he takes on that title, you know, it kind of lifts some of that burden from her. Yeah, I didn't even realize that, that Armin didn't kill Aaron, and it was Mikasa who rightfully can make that claim. But yeah, she wants the... Yoshikage Kira, quiet life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then Mikasa runs into Emir, says, I've gotten headaches from you. You kept giving me migraines by peeking into my fucking head. Um, you know, Emir trying to see, I guess, what love is like based on Mikasa's 
relationship with Aaron. So I think through Mikasa's actions, Ymir learned that in her defiance of the king, she could love him enough in a way to learn to let him go. And that's why it shows that alternate reality where Ymir could have killed the king before she fades away. Okay, that makes sense. Another quick thing or piece of trivia here is for any eagle-eyed viewers, you might notice that in that scene where we see the impaled King Fritz, the center jewel on his crown, or I guess you know each of the prongs, is the Star of Eldia that the sequestered Eldians wore on their armbands. Oh, I did not see that at all. But what I did see, as we're getting more like closure in some of these stories, is Niccolo still with Sasha's family. Let's fucking go. Oh yeah, and the the three years later. Yeah, as they're kind of showing like different, you know, moments for different people. We see Sasha's family walk through the crowd um, of Eldians that are... Jaegerists. Yeah, Jaegerists, you know, rallying for whatever cause they're they're rallying for now. And I'm like, let's go. I'm so glad he's still with with their with her family. I think they've created a very strong bond and he, he loved her very much. Also, it looks like since we were mentioning them, the Jaegerists have a new emblem for the entire military. Uh, looks like the Wings of Freedom with two crossed rifles. Um, so again, A little more uh, raw and uh, know, like, unfriendly there. but <laughs> They didn't learn their lesson, of course, in all of this. Um, and they took on Aaron's motto, one that he spoke to Mikasa when they fought off her home intruders. And then in solitude in his prison cell in the final season, if we win, we live. If we lose, we die. We have to fight to win, fight, fight, or tatakae. There it is. We also get confirmation that again, Historia's baby is not Baby Jaeger Jr. Let's fucking go. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, Aaron had talked to Historia about the future before the rumbling began, and Historia is commenting like, "This is the life that we he wished for us, um, but it's kind of the life that we have through the choices that we've made, and mm-hmm. we'll need to do what we need to do to pursue uh, peace." But yes, we find out that um, her baby's been born. It's now probably like a toddler or something, and it looks nothing like Aaron. And out comes the dude that we never get to see, which is presumably her husband and so the father of her child. It was a real. It was really a country bumpkin. Yes, which is <laughs> awesome, and we get even more confirmation of that because then we jump into a ship that is carrying the scouts to Paradise for the first time in years. Yeah, not the Arahisu ship, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, it kind of transitions from Historia's monologue to the scouts reading that same monologue from a letter uh, that she sent to them. And Reiner smells the letter and he's like, damn, this is this smells just like her. Um, he's obviously still got a crush on her. But then I think it's John that says don't lust after married women. Yeah, so we get confirmation <laughs> that she's married to whoever the father of her child is. I forgot, yeah, I think season two, Reiner just quickly says in a scene where I think Historia's patching up one of his injuries, gotta marry her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, everyone's, you know, firing shots here. So as after John says that, he's fixing his hair in the mirror and Peek take a, takes a stab at him and asks who he's trying to look good for. Um, I think we all know uh-huh. that she's hinting at Mikasa because it's the first time you're going to see Mikasa in many years. But 
John kind of plays it off by saying, oh, I'm looking good for all of the, the chicks that are going to read about me in the history books. Um, but then Reiner then chimes in again, shots firing every, every direction. <laughs> he had a clap back. Yeah. Um, Reiner ch- uh, chimes in and says, uh, no, it's going to be all the girls reading the field guide to horses, which I take as <laughs> Reiner continuing Aaron's legacy of shitting on John and saying that he looks like a horse. I was like, that's great. I love that. Yeah. It never gets old. I do want to, you know, me being a, a big fan of John, I want to comment really quick and just kind of think about John and his crush on Mikasa um it's it's a love unrequited it's uh you know it's 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 understandable because mikasa obviously loves aaron and aaron loves her back but you know it's kind of cute but sad to think that john has had this crush on mikasa for many many years now and even not seeing her in like three years he still has those feelings lingering yeah, Mikasa is going to pine after Aaron for 10 years. John can also pine after Mikasa for 10 years. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so as the conversation continues, um, Annie enters the room and then Armin you know, is talking about the potential risk of going to Paradise in the positions that they're in now. Um, but they're the scouts who are made of people who just don't quit. And then Annie chimes in and she's like, but I'm part of the military police. <laughs> <laughs> it's just great lighthearted humor in this scene. And then again, Armin is still getting what he wants because really what they're doing is traveling to Paradise in an opportunity to talk things through instead of resorting to killing. And uh, what I want to, you know, infuse here is my theory, my ongoing theory of Armin being the narrator of this entire story. I don't think it came true in the literal sense that like this is going to end with Armin, you know, telling a an actual story to anybody that we get to see on screen but i think it is him telling the story of what has transpired to the people of parodies to catch them up and for him to try and find that mutual understanding with them so that they can achieve peace does that make sense yeah i think the soft confirmation is when armin says everyone on parodies will want to know their story the story of what we've seen Let's tell them all of it. And there you go. That's why he narrated the the previews for every fucking episode <laughs> in the the Attack on Titan universe. Um, and then outside of the scouts, we get more confirmations of what everyone's up to. We see Levi living a peaceful life, helping children, but then also experiencing some repressed memories when he pulls out a lollipop that clearly looks like the one that that clown tried to give him. <laughs> Which is fitting because I think November 4th, the release date of the finale, was National Candy Day. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) He's just being festive. We also see Onion Coupon and Yelena, for some reason, I can't believe that bitch survived, um, helping with uh, some of the restoration efforts. Yeah, and she's frozen for a moment looking at the box she's holding until Onion Coupon calls out to her. And it's because the box is full of baseball mitts and baseballs. Yes, because Yelena was obsessed with Zeke. And then we see Gabby and Falco planting trees together. And yeah, that's everyone. (laughs) And then the birds that fly overhead. And then the birds. Symbolizing the freedom everyone now gets to enjoy with the curse of the Titans removed from the world. The damn birds. Just when you think it's about to end, there's another scene that comes up. Just scene after scene, but 
I think this is one of the most important ones of all. Yeah, they kind of blue ball you with the the ending here. Every time we thought it was ending, there was more to it. But that's fine. That's fine with me because I, I kind of didn't want it to end. But the next scene is Mikasa at the tree um, that Aaron's buried at. She's still by his side. She's talking to him saying, hey, our friends are going to visit us soon. You're probably so excited. Um, but then crying because ultimately she misses him. And while she's feeling this welling up of emotions, a bird comes out of nowhere and wraps the scarf around her, just as Aaron had promised in season two, right? About wrapping the scarf around her as many times as needed. Yes. And I think she says a line here from season two as well, um, where she says, Aaron, thanks for wrapping the scarf around me, which is the final line of the entire series. And that's how they first met, too. After Aaron saves her, he wraps that scarf around her. I think that's, that's that first wrapping of the scarf symbolizes when the red string of fate was connected between the two of them. And it's the series ends right where it, the story kind of begins under the tree. And so in that sense, I know the song for the final chapter, part one, the ending song was Under the Tree by Sim. I think it takes on so much more meaning here with Mikasa's final scene because it had a lyric saying, I'll be waiting, waiting for you. Let me hold you under the tree. A couple more things with this scene. The bird in question that has wrapped the scarf around her, which I think is supposed to symbolize Aaron, apparently it is called a parasitic Jaeger. What the fuck? <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yes, it's a bird that's native to Northern Europe, but I think it's fitting considering what Aaron's last name is. And this is another thing that I think we questioned in our final chapters, part one review, is what does Mikasa's scarf symbol? Does it symbolize her loyalty to Aaron or her love for Aaron? And I think the answer is love. I'm looking up the uh, the parasitic Jaeger and on Wikipedia, and there's a section under the etymology, and it says the word Jaeger is derived from the German word Jaeger, meaning hunter. Is that kind of saying like he's hunting the Titans? Yeah, and actually, since we're talking about etymology, um, Jaeger, yeah, I think implies that he is on a hunt to rid the world of Titans. The name Aaron is of Turkish origin, and I think its exact meaning is he who progresses or has reached towards divine maturity and sacred wisdom. So I think in line with he who likes to move forward. <laughs> <laughs> Another interpretation is that Aaron could mean saint or holy person. I don't think that really applies to Aaron. So I like the first definition of someone who has progressed or moved forward. So let's talk about the end credits and all of these still shots that we get um, around the tree. So we see the um, the scouts visit, and then we see imagery of like other people, you know, at the tree. We get um, it kind of like fast forwards as time progresses through the seasons, and in the background, Paradis gets built up into more of a modern city. Um, as decades continue to go by, it seems like for a long time, Paradis knows peace until one day an attack happens. War breaks out, and eventually Paradis is wiped out in an explosion. It, it kind of makes you question, is it that the generations later on were too far removed from what had happened with the Titans 
to remember why they sought peace in the first place. I think it's definitely a commentary because I know Aaron does say to Armin, like, the conflict continues. Mm -hmm. It seems like the conflict continues, but then they found peace for a while, but then the conflict continues again as it, like, starts anew. And I think that's just a commentary on, like, the, the nature of humans is... I don't know. It's not conflict, right? Like there's more to it than that, but they keep following this cycle because maybe they forget love for a time. Yeah. I think it can also be summed up in the quote, history repeats itself. And I know this was a controversial ending for the manga and what happens here in the anime is pretty much the same thing. And so I think the question is like with Aaron's goal being freedom, I don't think it was intended to be internal freedom for the reasons that you mentioned. The way I look at it is that Aaron had broken the cycle of hatred to a fault, and he only broke the cycle in its current state to allow his friends to live the life that he wished for them and to rid the world of Titans, And because that's what he had originally set out to accomplish. I think it's almost like the freedom that came from that was almost like a byproduct of what he was trying to achieve. But I don't think this diminishes the significance of this series and this finale's message of love and understanding being the key to ending a cycle of violence that just by our very human nature will continue to rear its head for generations to come. I think I saw a YouTube comment somewhere on like a a video for the ending credits saying it was never the Titans. It was and always will be humanity. The cycle will keep repeating. Because I think for AOT to end on a pure and they lived happily ever after ending would just feel too clean, especially as we have been, or like, especially as we individually draw comparisons of the series to the realities of life and just the nature of how this story has progressed from season one all the way to the final season, where we think the Titans are a threat, but then we realize that the humans are a threat. Then we realize that the world's, the world is a threat. Uh, So this constant cycle of, seeing everything like the the cycle of hatred basically um i think it's going to continue throughout history until people learn to embrace love and understanding and i think this uh this down the road fate for parodies being wiped out was hinted at in the final season part two ed akuman no ko where we see like images of Aaron mm-hmm. as an adult and as a kid, but then we also see Paradise abandoned and sort of covered in foliage and greenery as like nature has taken over again. And yeah, so we, we kind of already knew that this was coming to a certain extent. And I think all of this also harkens back to, again, one of Mikasa's most famous lines on the series, the world is a cruel place, but it's also very beautiful. Hope grows from a dump. <laughs> <laughs> but after being blue-balled a couple of times, the show actually does truly come to an end with a post credit scene where we see some kid who I think kind of resembles Aaron a little bit, um, who's hiking with his dog and finds the tree of life and enters that tree, signaling that the cycle will repeat itself. But my biggest question of all of this, of the entire show now that it has officially ended and i've seen how it ends my question is does the dog also become a titan (laughs) (laughs) if they're gonna follow emir's path and like come across the squiggly thing 
and then become a titan does the dog also become a titan like do we have a new breed of titans that are gonna show up because of the dog yeah the dog titan <laughs> instead of it's the gonna beast be like titan. more of a literal beast titan <laughs> <laughs> well it it's not actually the tree of life it's the tree that aaron was buried under but it's starting to resemble the tree of life that emir first stumbled upon uh, I, I saw a tweet that wanted to compare the sort of color and I guess cinematography of how these trees are presented in Emir's past it's has this sense of foreboding and doom with the color palette being like hues of dark orange the way it's portrayed here it feels like a tree of life where it's bright greens and it and evokes that growing and blooming foliage so it feels like it's a more hopeful beginning but you know, we'll, we'll never know. Although I've heard or I've read that Isayama is planning to come out with a another chapter in the Attack on Titan universe. Uh-oh. <laughs> <I don't laughs> oh, no. Yeah. I don't know if he, he's trying to do damage control. We'll see if it's related to this uh, post credit scene. Oh, man. Too soon. That's like really too soon. Let us let us have this. Let us digest this for about 10 years or so. Well, I think it's coming out next year. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, he's done amazing work. So I hold out hope that it's a good chapter. But who knows? Really great. Going back to the the, the flashing images of Paradise. um, There's one where we see an old man visiting the grave. And I, I joke that it's old man Jenkins, but I'm wondering if it's an older Armin visiting both Aaron's and Mikasa's grave. Oh, yeah. We should talk about that a little bit before that. We do see that Mikasa passes away mm-hmm. and there's flowers at Aaron's grave, I think, to signal that Mikasa was buried with Aaron. Yes. I mean, it's hard to see because, you know, it's the image is so small against the credits. So you'd have to really zoom in. But I think there are two graves you see when that old man appears. And that's kind of consistent with the story that Armin told Zeke about like how he envisions like what life's all about because he was the last to reach the tree. Oh, in their shit. Race. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like Armin outlived both Aaron and Mikasa. And so that's why this old man appears in... Or at the gravesite. And again, this is just speculation. I don't know. It's just what I'm presuming. But if that's true, that's ironic because Mikasa was the only one who wasn't a Titan wielder and didn't have a 13-year contract. I know, yeah. <laughs> but then we, we reached the conclusion after the post credit scene, and this was something that I was hoping for and we brought up in Final Chapter Part 1 review, is if we're going to get a title card that says the end in the same vein as the title card's where we've seen the to be continued. We did get this title card and it was both satisfying and just bittersweet to know that after 10 years, we finally reached the ending of this anime. We witnessed history as weebs, as anime fans. We have witnessed anime history. It's a wild thing to try and wrap our heads around, but it's really, really cool. But our discussion doesn't end there because we still have plenty to talk about. And so let's bring up the ending theme song for the final chapters part two. The title of which is To You 2000 or 20,000 Years From Now. And the featured artist 
is Linked Horizon. There it Let's is. Let's fucking go. <laughs> Our prayers have been answered. Revel from Linked Horizon has returned to close out the series. And this was just another thing I was so thrilled to hear about. But he's not alone because this song also features the vocal stylings of Yui Ishikawa, the VA for Mikasa Ackerman. Very fitting. And the, I was wondering why it sounded like Mikasa. That's yeah. that's crazy. And I, I think that was the right move for this song because it, knowing that it's her, just adds so much more significance and meaning to it. It's funny because the beginning melody, like there's this kind of like chime noise. Um, it sounds like the intro to Gym Class Heroes' Cubit's Chokehold. It was like the da da da, but <laughs> that's just an aside. Uh, but it reminds me like the lyric, like "Take a look at my girlfriend. She's the only one I got." Like, yeah, like Aaron. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Just, that's a. That's a. That's a stretch. Uh, but yeah, this song feels kind of like a spiritual successor to Akatsuki no Requiem, which was Linked Horizons ED from season three, part two. E- no, sorry, season three, part one. One of those. One of the parts in season three. Um, but to look at the lyrics for this song, the first half feels like it's sung from Mikasa's perspective as she's mourning the loss of Aaron, but holds on dearly to her memories of him, and it's symbolized in her scarf. Because you have lyrics like, The warmth that envelops my trembling neck, I will confront this cold as many times as necessary. Fight, keep fighting, your words keep echoing even now. Then Revo, the lead singer of Linked Horizon, takes over the melody, and it becomes more of a harrowing prophecy of the cyclical nature of life and death and a warning of history almost being doomed to repeat itself. And I like that it incorporates a line from Mr. Browse from the, uh, the Children of the Forest episode with a lyric like, Can you hear it? Leave the forest no matter how many times you lose your way. Grass and trees have sprouted from the scorched field. The shadows and light that civili- civilization possesses. And... You hear motifs from other Linked Horizon songs scattered throughout this song. But the last melody that's sung by a choir of children is actually the beginning melody of Guren no Yumiya, or Crimson Bow and Arrow, which is the series' first OP. So brilliant way to musically close out this finale. But that's not the only piece of music that is being attached to these final chapters because there is an actual OP and ED. And the OP and ED for the final chapters are going to be used when the specials are split into individual episodes for select streaming services. So that would constitute episodes 88 to 94 with the way that these specials are split out. And the song, or the OP, is called Saigo no Kyojin, or The Last Titan by Linked Horizon. And we'll share a link to the OP and the ED on our Discord so everyone can can see them. But with this OP, it's a classic return to form with Linked Horizon providing the final OP for the series because visually it feels like AOT's nostalgic, grandstanding and triumphant OPs, which are kind of far off from the MAPA trademark that was evident in the Rumbling OP. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of weird seeing these images of like, Aaron from earlier seasons drawn in Mappa style. You don't see it too obviously because there's a lot going on and they they make a lot of quick cuts and it's Aaron from far away. 
but it feels like we're back in Wit Studio times, but mm -hmm. through the lens of MAPPA. But it's a really cool OP, and it, it does feel very reminiscent of the earlier ones. Yeah, I got a bit of a nostalgia rush watching this, and it's basically a speedrun of Aaron's life all the way up to the rumbling, and then you have shots, moody shots of the LD Avengers before those traditional action shots, action shots where they take down the, the founding or Aaron's founding Titan. But the one shot I want to point out is there's a free shot of Mikasa in front of Aaron's founding Titan, and it mirrors that of Aaron preparing to attack the colossal Titan in the first season one OP. Hmm. Okay. Full circle moments for this cycle of violence series. <laughs> And then lyrics-wise, I think it's it doesn't reach the lofty heights of other Linked Horizon OPs like Guren no Yumiya or Shinzo o Sasageo. It's still a decent song. And in true Linked Horizon fashion, it's an anthem that boasts of triumph in humanity's goal towards freedom, where it says, we will keep moving forward beyond the broken walls. But I saw a YouTube comment on this OP where it points out that I think the first verse or yeah, the first couple of verses reference the seven previous OPs of the series. So you have Let Loose Like an Arrow, referencing Crimson Bone Arrow or Guren no Yumiya, The Slave That Once Dreamt of Freedom, referencing Wings of Freedom or Jiyu no Tsubasa, Watched Many Offered Hearts Pass On, referencing Dedicate Your Hearts or Shinzo Osasagio, and Became a Bird Drenched in Red, referencing Red Swan, the Path Paved with Corpses, referencing the Path of Longing and Corpses, or Shikabane no Michi, Reaches the Ocean on the Heels of War, referencing My War, or Boku no Senso, With the Rumbling of the Earth in Tow, referencing the Rumbling. That's intense. The fact that they like, went to those lengths to pay homage to all of the other songs, um, I'm sure that wasn't easy from a lyrics perspective to infuse all of that. And then we have the ED for the episode editions, the song which is titled Iterashai or See You Later by Ai Higuchi. This is the same artist but behind the second ED for the final season, which was Akuma no Ko or Child of Evil. And it's quite a unique aesthetic for AOT with the ED visuals, almost evocative of the art style used for Ranking of Kings. But I think this warm tone feels very in line with its focus on the Eramika ship and also, of course, like prominent bird imagery as usual in AOT. I love this, mostly because it's really pleasant scenes between Eren and Mikasa, what could have been. It's like it's it's like uh, giving all of us Eren and Mikasa shippers what we didn't get to see in the actual show. The art style, though, threw me off. We've never mm -hmm. seen anything quite like that. Um, there have been some EDs and OPs that take a little bit of a, a step away from what we traditionally see in AOT, but this one is completely different. But it, it still feels really nice, and I could watch this over and over again. Yeah, especially because, again, for the era of Mika sh shippers, um, you have the shadow of Mikasa resting her head on Eren's shoulder, and then the, the lewd hand-holding at the end, <laughs> which has a butterfly perched on top because the butterfly effect has always been referenced in AOT as well. Lyrics-wise for this song, the title, of course, Itarashai, is taken from Mikasa's final spoken line to Eren, focusing on her love for him and her desire to be with him again after all is said and done. And 
It has a beautiful poetic chorus for all you hopeless romantics out there. If tomorrow ever comes, I want to grow flowers with you. If tomorrow ever comes, I want to speak of love with you. Running, laughing, falling, wandering, protecting, holding. We'll meet again, won't we? Good night. Uh, it hurts. And that brings us to our final thoughts for Attack on Titan, the final season, the final chapters, part two, as well as our final thoughts for the entirety of Attack on Titan, the final season. But to start with the finale, how many Wind Beneath My Wings of Freedoms out of 10 would you give this episode? I would give this a 9.5 out of 10. This was a very satisfying finale. I honestly can't think of anything I didn't like about the ending. I got everything I hoped for. Mikasa, Armin, Reiner, and John are all still alive. Mikasa and Aaron are canon, and Aaron even confessed his feelings to Armin about Mikasa, so we know it's not a one-sided love. Um, it wasn't confirmed, but I hope that Armin and Ann our Armin and Annie are canon. Uh, Le- Levi, I almost said Leek. Levi killed Zeke. Maybe that's their their, their <laughs> canon that's name. Their <laughs> <laughs> um, we got the resolution of eliminating Titan abilities. The conflict is still continuing, but I don't know. Like that plus striving for peace just makes more sense. Kind of to your point earlier for Attack on Titan, it's not going to be all sunshine and rainbows just because the rumbling has stopped. Right, Isayama is more of a realist than that. Reiner got his redemption arc. He got the love that he was missing from his life and hopefully isn't trying to die anymore. Uh, Historia is confirmed, married to another guy, and the baby isn't Aaron's because it doesn't look like him. Um, Everyone got closure with Aaron. And um, the bonus, the TV format was the way that we got to experience the end of the show. We didn't have to worry about the last part being a movie. We got to watch it in TV format. That was awesome. So, you know, after everything that we've experienced in the past 10 years, I am satisfied with this ending. The reason I can't give it a full 10 out of 10 is because while I'm happy with the ending and while I feel it's satisfying, I didn't feel... Okay, so it was certainly epic. Don't get me wrong. But there, it was just missing a little bit more epicness that I was expecting for such an amazing historic anime. So it was there, right? It was a 9.5 out of 10. It just needed a little more oomph, I think, for me to give it the full 10 out of 10. But it still had some mind-blowing things associated with it. And there are four things in particular about the finale that are wild to me, and I want to call this out. Um, First of all, Armin admitting that this was all his fault when he showed Aaron the book, that was a huge mind-bender for me. Um, Two, Aaron sending Dinah to kill Carla instead of Bertolt, that was fucking wild because that was what launched this whole show, this whole, you know, mission for Aaron in the first place. Um, Three, Isayama made Aaron feel distant and practically absent the entire final season. And we talk a lot about that throughout our AOT special event, reviewing each and every episode of the final season. But what's wild to me is that Aaron was actually there the whole time talking to everyone through pads, of course, erasing their memories until the conflict was over. But that means that he did care about everybody and that everyone, at least from from Aaron's perspective, that he cares about, everyone got closure with him. That is what's most satisfying for me about all this besides the Aaron Mikasa stuff. And then four, 
what's wild to me is that Mikasa was the most important show a character in this show. Like you could you could argue that she's the most important character. So what I'm trying to say is there are still some wild um blow your brain moments in this finale. But there are other moments that I recall from the final season that just blew my mind a little bit more than a lot of these insane things. And I think that's why I just I I take that down, you know, half a point to 9.5 versus 10 for this particular episode. What about you? What would you rate the episode? I would give this in nine and a half out of 10 as well. I use this line a lot or for back to this quote a lot. This finale was cruel, but beautiful. My eyes were glued to the TV screen as I experienced a wave of emotions, all while still trying to wrestle with the fact that this really is the end of a series that I have loved and cherished for over 10 years. And I know the saying in this situation would go, it's not amazing, but it's great, with my score of 9.5 out of 10. But I'm going to take it a step further by saying it's not amazing, but it's terrific. As I think is very evident in our extremely thorough review, I think this is going to have the record for the longest Strictly Anime oh episode. <laughs> there were just many things to unpack in this finale, but nearly every detail, every line, every action throughout the four seasons that led up to this moment were addressed with a desirable and intentional sense of closure, convoluted though it may be to reach those points sometimes. I think this finale capitalizes on the bombastic sequences and dizzying climaxes that are archetypical in modern anime, but the finale's real beauty is in the way that it definitely draws storylines and character arcs to a close that, at the very least, are satisfying. And that's quite the relief for me, knowing that many anime and TV shows out there do not always have the privilege or the luxury of wrapping up their story in such a clean way. So just as Aaron has made peace with himself in moving forward to a conclusion where his friends get to live out the truest sense of freedom that they can, I too have found peace in knowing that it was well worth the journey to get to this point. And with all of those thoughts said and done, I want to focus on the question of, do we think Aaron is the hero of this story and can we get behind what he's doing? And as I iterate or reiterated before, yes, I'm still hashtag team Aaron despite his crimes against humanity, despite his seemingly dystopian and despairing outlook on life, Aaron took the hand that he was dealt and played the game in a way that would ultimately bring about the most good for the world. And in that, there's an argument of whether two, two wrongs make a right, but then I think back to two lines, one spoken by General Magath from the Warhammer Titan episode, where he says there's no doubt that Eldians are the spawn of the devil, and there's no doubt that we are devils ourselves. And then the other line is spoken by Armin in the Erwin Smith episode from season one. If there's anyone who can bring change, it will be someone willing to sacrifice what they care for, someone who can throw away their humanity in order to defeat monsters. And with those lines in context, Aaron knew that he would have to bear the heavy burden of the world and become its scapegoat in order to facilitate the vision of peace that the world so desperately sought for, and that, get ready Dark Knight fans, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Wow. Because he can do those things because he's not a hero. So for him to willingly embody hate and evil in order to bring about love and peace, 
is arguably the ultimate sacrifice in this AOT finale. So Aaron is definitely the unsung hero of this world. And if not that, then he is truly a legend. Damn. I like how you still were able to sneak in a Dark Knight reference. Yeah, I just had to. I <laughs> Forever was, and always. <laughs> I was holding that in my hand and waiting for the right moment to strike. But I think that brings us to our final season rating for Attack on Titan, the final season. What would you give this entire season? A 10 out of 10. I, I won't even go into the details because I've already spoken so highly of it throughout our AOT special event and throughout this review episode for the finale. This has been a phenomenal ride for the past 10 years, but the final season has been such a pleasure to watch. It answered so many questions that we all had. It gave us so many incredible revelations. It blew our minds a million times over. Um, the animation was great. The music was great. Just like everything was so amazing about the final season that I think it truly is a 10 out of 10 masterpiece, um, just as the entire show is. Does it have hiccups here or there? Does it, um, you know, does it have its faults? Sure, but I think more often than not, this show is incredibly impressive, and Isayama has done a brilliant job with the writing and creating this world and these characters, and I thank him. I thank him for creating this story, for letting us experience it, and again, as weebs, we have now witnessed anime history. But what would you rate the final season? A 10 out of 10 IGN. <laughs> <laughs> and get ready, because this is going to be a, a pretty long reflection. Even though it took us three goddamn years to close out this show, it was very well worth the wait, as it delivered on all fronts in showing us that, yes, this is the conclusion to an epic saga that deserves your time and your energy. And these are the moments that we live for in seeking out stories from our cultural pantheon that entertain us and teach us about all of life's sorrows and beauties. I know I had my qualms about MAPPA at the get-go with inheriting from which studio this task of animating the final season, but with how faithfully and reverently they stayed true to Isayama's original vision, while providing us with the cutting-edge quality of its animation and direction. And by the way, a phenomenal, atmospherically cinematic soundtrack from Kota Yamamoto and Hiroyuki Sawano that deserves all the accolades, there's no doubt in my mind that the final season was placed in the right hands. And to think about Attack on Titan holistically, who knew from a violent and bloody splatterfest turned political drama we could learn such timeless virtues as friendship, courage, bravery, sacrifice, understanding, and above all, love. There may never be another show like Attack on Titan. Or to give it even more conviction, there will never be another show like Attack on Titan. And this show has meant so much to me on a deeper level than just another TV series. It was one of the main reasons I gravitated back into the fold of anime, and it allowed me to learn the possibilities of exhilarating storytelling through the medium of anime, as it did for many people who saw this as their gateway. And I don't think I need to explain the impact that AOT has had on anime entering the mainstream pop culture zeitgeist as well. And I'm pretty sure outside of JoJo, there's probably no other franchise to which I can claim a sizable collection of merchandise and memorabilia. I say that as I'm wearing a, an AOT shirt, and drinking tea out of an AOT coffee mug. 
I have to confess that I have a body pillow of my husband, Levi. And that, that is a true story. But now that the show has reached its conclusion, I might finally have to readjust my top three anime ranking that has been left unchanged for years because of the immense significance and impact that AOT's Endgame has brought about to my entire experience watching this show. But regardless of where that ranking may be, I too am so grateful and privileged to have been a part of anime history in bearing witness to a truly grand epic that I am sure will be remembered and revered for generations to come in this cruel yet beautiful world. So in the spirit of anime's national motto, Shinzo o Sasageyo, or Dedicate Your Heart, I know for sure that Attack on Titan will always have a special place in my dedicated heart. Hell yeah, the national anthem of anime. Let's go! Well, with that, I know we promised that we would talk about a couple of manga spoilers, or really manga comparisons, because through our research, we came across a couple of interesting things um, that we, of course, wouldn't know because we didn't read the manga. Um, and we want to just, you know, comment on them, I guess, really quick. So now is your time. If you are an anime-only person and you don't want to know any manga content for AOT, you can go ahead and close out this episode because it's the last thing we're going to talk about before we officially end this finale review. A quick shout out to all the AOT manga readers on our Discord who remained tight-lipped and spoiler-tagged their messages in the AOT channel as a courtesy to us anime watchers. I'm sure many of you were probably privately roasting the shit out of my stupid predictions and assumptions, but I appreciate y'all for being true warriors. So let's jump into it real quick. Manga comparisons. Um, there. Do you want to start? Because I know that you had some specific things. There's really one that I wanted to talk about, but I think you also have this on your list. Yeah, I'll start with some minor differences from the manga and the anime um, that were points of contention. Well, this one wasn't. Um, Levi handing out the candy is actually an anime original ending. Um, in the manga, he's actually seen in a wheelchair being taken care of by an older Gabby and Falco. Oh, I kind of like that better. Yeah. I don't because know. it's like he's kind of by himself. <laughs> I well, like he has that the, the children coming up to him yeah, as like Uncle he has, Levi. <laughs> he has more purpose in the anime ending and also mm. repressed memories of the lollipop from the clown. <laughs> yeah. But I kind of like, I, I feel like he's alone. Like I kind of want him with Gabby and Falco, unless the idea is that all of them are in the same place, all helping people. No, they, like, yeah, they are. Oh, okay. Like, that like kind of refugee camp. Okay, that makes sense. Then I guess that's fine. Yeah, but it would just be funny to see Levi having, being taken care of Gabby and Falco of all That's people. true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, why not Onyankopon? Like, I feel like they would chum it up a lot. Um, I guess another manga difference from the anime, or no, sorry, this is more of a point of contention with manga readers, is that when Sasha, the vision of Sasha appears before Jean and Connie, uh, manga readers were upset that Marco wasn't present in the visions of the fallen comrades. So I think they expected marco to appear in this moment but I, I feel like you could argue that sasha played a more significant role in john and connie's lives yeah i personally feel like the trio was like the core of that friend group and that's what was special right because right before sasha died connie was hugging both john and sasha saying while i care about everybody you two are most important to me so i i 
think that Marco played a an important role in their friendship, but I don't think it was anything near Sasha's significance. I think the most egregious controversy from the manga ending is related to the conversation that Aaron has with Armin um, in that final chapter we watched, where Isayama, I was actually reading this, and there's a Kotaku article that I can direct people to on our Discord, um, Attack on Titan anime finale, rewrites the ending for the better. And Isayama actually personally requested to rewrite this conversation because of how it was received uh, by manga readers. Uh, it's because of the dialogue that happens, and I feel like it was rightfully modified in the anime adaptation. So in the manga, Armin says to Eren, thank you, you became a mass murderer for our sake, I won't let this sin go to waste. This line was changed in the anime to, thank you Eren for showing me what was beyond the walls, for showing me this sight. We did this, so after this we'll be together forever, won't we? And the implication is that Armin and Aaron will reunite in hell. So I think contextually, Armin in both instances is acknowledging that he is sort of complicit in causing Aaron to violently fight for their freedom and bears a heavy burden as much as he does. But I just think Isayama's intention was just not worded the right way. And so I think this is what like heavily hung on his soul um, after completing the manga that I feel like he wanted to write the ship with the anime. And like I said, I think the way it was modified in the anime adaptation speaks much better to what his intent was. Yeah, I agree. I think it was a smart move to request the rewrite. Um, and ultimately, it's his work and how he truly intends for it to be delivered to the audience is what you know what we should go with and what we should get at the end of the day so i'm glad that, that happened and i believe you have a potential manga spoiler that could incite the aramika shippers out there okay yeah so let me just preface this by saying i forever and always will be an aaron mikasa shipper but as a big fan of john and knowing that john has had a crush on mikasa for a long time if there were to be an individual who she could spend some time with and who would take very good care of her, I feel like it could be John. Don't come at me. I still forever and always will always choose Aaron over John for Mikasa. But what I saw in the manga is that it's hinted that um, Mikasa eventually goes on to marry John and have a child together because they there's a couple with a child visiting Aaron's grave at one point. And it very much so looks like John with the same outfit that he had when he was first reintroduced um, in the final season at uh, in Marley mm -hmm. with the hat and the suit. And then Mikasa with her shawl and her dress and her hair tied back and then a child with them. And it also looks very reminiscent of John's like dream that he had where mm -hmm. he was married to Mikasa and had a child with her. The dream he had after the rumbling. Yes. So um, that kind of hints that Mikasa eventually, you know, marries John, has a child um, and lives her life because Aaron said, you're going to live a very long time. Forget about me, you know, find somebody else. I don't think it's like Mikasa has forgotten about Aaron and doesn't still love him because clearly they're visiting his grave. 
if this is what Isayama was trying to go for. Um, but of course, that like pissed off a lot of people. The way I look at it is that sometimes it's possible for someone to love again, but it will never be like your first love. Yeah, and again, like I, I could be happy either way. I again, I, I can't stress this enough. I would very much prefer that Aaron and Mikasa are together, right? Like that's what I want. But if there had to be another person. I'm okay with it being John because, again, I think he would treat her very well. I think he would love her very much. And, I mean, you do want Mikasa to be happy throughout her life. Mm -hmm. But I think ultimately she's going to wait to reunite with Aaron. And that's why, presumably, she's buried next to Aaron at the tree. Um, I think this is also embedded in the still shots during the credit or the credits you do see a very similar shot of a very similar couple with a baby at the gravesite. And then it shows another shot of a group of people with what seems to be the same couple, but it almost looks like they've aged up a little bit because mm-hmm. the woman has a cane. So you can you can assume that that's John and Mikasa, and now their child or their children have grown up and they have their own extended families. And then that's when they introduce Mikasa's, not like death scene, right? But like they confirm that she has passed Her funeral. on. So why would they put her funeral at that point if it wasn't potentially her and John that they were showing in those still images. Mm-hmm. That's just kind of me thinking it through like logically, being realistic about it. But who knows? We could be wrong. We don't see anything other than these tiny little drawings of people. Well, I, I think in another sense with Mikasa starting a family, it's a way to show that she has found peace. And again, that's what Aaron wanted for her. Um like I said, it will never be like her first love, but she has found found her sense of calm in the world after Aaron's passing. Let's just hope like she she did pine for Aaron for ten years before she did like started <laughs> that family. But I think the anime these images are open ended enough um, where Aramika shippers can still sleep well at night. And there you have it. That was our review of the finale of Attack on Titan, the show that will go down in anime history. Oh, man. What do we do now? It clearly has already left a hole in our hearts. Um, we, we feel empty inside. It's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of like when Code Geass ended and we were all just kind of waiting around thinking like, how can it get any better than this? And then along comes Attack on Titan. How can it get any better than Attack on Titan? Kagurabachi. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's it's really sad to think that this is probably our final episode talking about Attack on Titan. I mean, I know we'll mention the anime a lot in our podcast for many years to come, but this this really is the end of an era. It's kind of bittersweet, but you know what? We got to be like Aaron and just keep moving forward. And thank you guys for following us, uh, you know, being here with us on this journey as we've reviewed every episode of the final season, as we've done rewatches of the first three seasons, even talked a bit about the OVAs. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully you guys have enjoyed our reviews 
and hopefully you love Attack on Titan as much as we do. Um, it's been a long journey, but it's been a, an amazing one, and it's it's coming to a close. Oh, I'm so sad saying that. But as always, subscribe to Strictly Anime on your favorite podcast service. Join our Discord to chat with us and to talk all about Attack on Titan. Follow us on Instagram at the Strictly Series, on Twitter at Strictly Series, and check out our website, thestrictlyseries.com. If you'd like to support the show, then head over to patreon.com slash strictly series and tune into Strictly Jojo, our other podcast dedicated to Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. All links are in the description. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weeb. And for the final time, Sasageo. Shinzo wo Sasageo.